have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. So sit back, relax, and remember Southern Sense is common sense. fraud, COVID, pandemic, lockdowns, inflation, crop shortage, toilet paper shortage. It's crazy. If you're worried about the future, I really don't blame you. Millions of Americans are wondering what to do. How do you hedge your bed? How do you protect yourself and your family? Well, Americans are quietly stocking up on emergency food, shouldn't you? So ask yourself, do you currently have enough food on hand to get you through the next month? If not, you should strongly consider getting a four-week emergency food kit from My Patriot Supply. They're the nation's number one prepared this company, and their mission is your survival. They've served millions of American families, and they will be honored to serve you too. So right now, you can save $50 off their four-week emergency food kit, which comes with breakfast, lunch, dinner, drinks, and even snacks. This food gives you a minimum requirement of 2,000 calories per day, and the special packaging keeps it fresh for up to 25 years in proper storage. You can't go wrong. So head on over to preparewithsouthernsense.com and claim your four-week emergency food kit at this special price. You'll save $50 per kit if you act now. So if you're on my website listening to this show, go up to the top corner and you'll see my smiling face on the left-hand side where it says prepare. Click on that link to My Patriot Food. Or... 
you can go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. Be prepared. All right, and you're here listening to another adventure here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, iHeart, oh, Facebook, ah, heck with it. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the mostest or the least mostest, whichever way you want to put it, Annie, the radio chickadee, along with my co-host, the courageous, <laughs> the confused. Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you? And you forgot the busy. <laughs> the busy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm Curtis, doing fine. Trying to get Curtis my second gonna, win. Yeah, Curtis is going to be leaving us a little bit early today. Uh, he's got a book signing tomorrow in several, several different locations. So he's going to bug out to go to her, his publicist or whatever and pick up a whole my, stack yeah, my of books himself. Yeah, all your backup. When I run so out, his, I, I go to Jacksonville, yeah. Yeah. His books sell like hotcakes. You were down at our tea party along with uh, Jonathan Dunn. Uh, what, what was that, just last yeah. month? And you, right. you sold a bunch. Yep. Uh, I've yeah. had you to our county GOP where you sold a bunch, and that was a couple of years back. But um, mm-hmm. I was off uh, for two weeks. Uh, one One week was not my fault or by intention. I had a serious, serious allergic reaction to a medication, something that I've been taking for a long time, and all of a sudden, boom, next thing I know, I'm collapsing, I'm dialing 911, and they had to physically pick me up. I got bruises and cuts on my back from where they picked me up and slid me onto the gurney, the EMS, and then sliding oh. me uh, from the gurney. I mean, they took me even for a CAT scan, and that's a whole other story in itself. Um, and I couldn't even roll myself off the gurney onto the table for the CAT scan. He had to help me. So, trust me, this was a muscle relaxant. And whatever it did, it, it made me confused. I was, it made no sense. And here I am in the ER, and I'm texting Curtis, and I'm texting our buddy Vito, Vito Esposito, Mamma Mia, No Sharia, over at Global Patriot Radio. Vito and Curtis carried off the show. We did miss one guest when I wasn't there because, like I said, I was at in the ER. I didn't have all the information with me, uh, so I forgot to – I wasn't even aware. I forgot that uh, Professor Lawrence Mead was supposed to be on the show, and we had to call him into the show. So there was one that was missed that was two Fridays ago. Um, and then last week I did a taped, pre-taped recording of some of my best interviews. Uh, it was – a who the act did I have? I had Kevin Sorbo, uh, Peter Wood. Um, I'm trying to think of who the heck, but go back to last week. and It was all some of the best um, interviews I did. I sliced that together last week for that show because I was up in Myrtle Beach, and we had the first in the South Carolina action conference, and it was about looking at the 2022 elections. What can we do? to help take back the House and the Senate, to put more conservative leadership into local government, your county councils or city councils, your school boards, things like that, starting from the grassroots all the way on up to the Senate and the House. Uh, so I'm telling you, uh, people are fired up, and you saw that in just the election this past Tuesday. 
And I got to tell you, we had two referendums here in my county. One was to change the form of government and no longer vote for the treasurer and the auditor. I'm not, yeah, yeah, the auditor. Two people that control your tax money and they wanted to take your voice and vote away. That was one of the referendums. The other, the other was to place a 1% sales tax. They called a local option sales tax allegedly to give relief to property owners. And the idea is that the tourists would pay the vast majority of the, of the taxes. That's not exactly how it works, especially during a pandemic. Prices would have shot through the roof with this tax. And the taxes that you end up paying in the end, if you actually added it all up, would have been thousands of dollars. And the relief you would have gotten was just a couple of hundred. We resoundedly defeated them. The tax we defeated by 72%. No, 72% of the voters said no. And this is this is one of those elections that no one pays attention to. It's an on odd year. It's not a midterm election. It is not a presidential election cycle. It's one of those they sneak stuff in. And as for changing government, oh boy, we defeated that. We voted. 79% no. And on an election like this, on an off-year election, you're lucky you get anywhere from 8 to 10% of the registered voters voting. We got 14% out. I say we did a damn good job. So that's what happens oh, yeah. when you do local activism. I took out a half-page ad out of my own pocket. I spent $2,600 um, on a half-page ad in three of the local major page papers. And, I mean, it, it, it's phenomenal. And I then turned around, had signs made, and we did sign wavings two Saturdays in a row. Believe me, the horns and the people giving the thumbs up was amazing. It was only a handful of us out there in the corner, but the response we got helped get the vote out. Your voices count. We did it here. You can do it, too. That said, let's get on with what we're doing today. Uh, we've got Suze Schaefer uh, as our first guest. She's the president of Aris Medical Solutions. And, you know, she's going to be talking about the HIPAA Act. And as I was listening to Newsmax, there was a representative out of Florida. Uh, his last name is Donald. He is the first time I heard any elected official saying, they can't do that because of the Privacy Act that's in HIPAA. What they're doing right. is not only unconstitutional, it breaks Delete. the HIPAA Act. It is illegal. So we're going to be talking about that with her. And now the guest that was missing two weeks ago is Professor Lawrence Mead. He's a professor of politics, believe it or not, at NYU. That takes guts. He does a podcast called Poverty and Culture. He has a brand new book out called Burdens of Freedom, Cultural Differences, and American Power. It's a fantastic book. And I'm going to have Peter Navarro, uh, the former trade advisor to President Trump and now a Newsmax contributor. He has a new book out called In Trump Time, a Journal of America's Plague Year. And he talks about the, the swamp that was inside the White House the double-dealing people that worked for Trump and now are anti-Trumpers. Can we say John Bolton? Can we say Mike Pence? 
It's all in the book. Um, I, I only got the book a couple of days ago, so I haven't read the whole entire thing, but even what I have read up until this point is powerful. And then we have our favorite friend from Heritage Foundation, Hans von Spakovsky. And he also has a brand new book that got tossed on my front porch at 7 p.m. by the Amazon delivery driver. All of a sudden, I saw a figure running across my front yard. I heard a thunk. I'm going, what the? And I'm getting ready to pick up my my off-duty firearm. And then I saw the Amazon truck, and I saw the book on the thing, and it says late-night delivery. But it's 7 p.m., so I have not been able to go through his book. We're going to bring him on at another date that we can talk about his book. We will talk about what is in there, but we got a lot to do, and I am running out of time, (laughs) so let's get with it. Um, Everyone that listens to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero, and today's dedication is going to go out to Trooper Joseph Gallagher of the New York State Police. His end of watch was Friday, March 26th of 2021. And this was written by Mackie Baker, and it was in the Buffalo News. Seven days before Christmas in 2017, State Trooper Joseph J. Gallagher pulled up behind a stop car on a two-lane overpass to the Long Island Expressway. He turned on his flashing lights, and got out to help the driver. He put flares down around the disabled vehicle to close one lane of traffic. At the same time, Jesse Cohen, a 23-year-old West Islip man, was driving home from getting his cell phone repaired and was texting on three separate conversation threads when he struck Gallagher with his car, sending him flying. Now, I I will say, I live not too far from this bridge on um, the Long Island Expressway by the Sagatose Parkway. It is an exit I have taken many times. I know it well. I only lived a few miles away. The trooper suffered a traumatic brain injury from which he would never recover. He never talked or walked again. He could never return home requiring 24-hour care in a nursing home. On March 26th, more than three years after the devastating crash, the South Buffalo native and married father of two young children died. Today, Gallagher is back home in Buffalo. A funeral mass led by one of his brothers was offered the following Wednesday morning and Our Lady of Victory Basilica in Lackawanna. We know Joe's quality of life would be greatly diminished, said his brother, the Reverend Martin Gallagher. So we knew he wasn't going to be live alive to be 95. We figured we still had more time with him. Trooper Gallagher, a 2000 graduate of Bishop Timmin St. Jude High School, was 38. His brother, speaking to the news, was a family spokesman recounting getting the terrible news about the crash. Gallagher, the parochial vicar of Our Lady of Charity in Buffalo, 
Starting next week, he will be the pastor of Blessed Sacrament Church in the town of Tonawanda. The priest was having dinner before a penance service at St. Peter and Paul Church in Hamburg when his sister and father both called. Their mother flew to Long Island that night. The next day, troopers drove the priest and other family members from Buffalo to the Long Island Hospital where doctors were trying to save Gallagher's life. We weren't sure what we were going to see, Gallagher said. There was a concern that he was not going to survive the accident, that he might pass in the hospital. The family members arrived at the hospital and were taken straight to Joseph's bedside. Joe was very badly beaten up, his brother said. You can see the bandages, the bruises, the tubes. They started learning about what happened. The driver had been distracted while texting when he hit Joseph Gallagher. He pulled over and cooperated. The overpass was notoriously narrow, a narrow one with a 40-foot drop. There was really nowhere for him to go, his brother said. Doctors told the family that Gallagher had suffered a severe traumatic brain injury. It wasn't clear if he would survive. His brother administered the Catholic sacrament, the anointing of the sick. After several months at the hospital, Gallagher was transferred to the Kessler Rehabilitation Center in West Orange, New Jersey, for specialized treatment for his brain injury. He later came back to Long Island to stay in a nursing home facility closer to his home. He wasn't paralyzed. He could move his arms and legs somewhat, but it took a tremendous amount of effort. He also couldn't speak. The wiring had been damaged between his brain and muscles, his brother said. The doctor would ask him to try to move his arm. There could be 15, 20, 30 seconds before there was any slight movement, his brother said. There was a delayed reaction. The doctors and Gallagher's family believed that while he couldn't talk, he did seem to understand what was going on and was frustrating for him not to be able to communicate that. The Gallagher family members took turns accompanying him to procedures. They would notice that when the doctors would talk to the family members, but not Gallagher himself, he would make noises or try to move his body. He would get very agitated, his brother said. I don't know how else to describe it. He was trapped in his own body. Last March, the priest went to visit his brother at the Gerwin Jewish Nursing Home and Rehabilitation Center in Comac. He remembered telling his brother about the coronavirus and how the city of New Rochelle had just been put under lockdown because of an outbreak. Soon after, every nursing home in the state would be shut down to visitors. That meant Gallagher was the last in the family to visit his brother in the nursing home. Joseph Gallagher's wife, Laura, was able to see him in person only when he was being taken to doctor visits. That meant the only way for the family to see him was through video calls. In July, the driver of the car that hit Joseph Gallagher pleaded guilty to third-degree assault. He was sentenced to 30 days in jail, three years on probation, 
and 1,000 hours of community service. At the sentencing hearing in October, Laura Gallagher told the court about how their children, William VI and Catherine III, have few memories of their father, Newsday reported. Gallagher's sister, Jamie Heights, told Cohen, be a helper. Go out into this world and do some good. Cohen cheerfully apologized according to the Newsday account. There is not a day, an hour, or a minute that goes by when I don't feel responsible for causing this tragedy, which was caused by my poor judgment. I am so sorry. Two dozen troopers in uniform and masks line the hallway of the courthouse building to show their support for Joseph Gallagher as Cohen walked out a free man having served the 30 days, according to a report on NBC New York. Despite easing of restrictions on visitors at nursing homes, the one where Gallagher was a patient couldn't reopen because some of the positive cases in other wings of the facility. Late last month, Gallagher became ill. That wasn't unusual, his brother said. About once a year, he would come down with pneumonia and end up hospitalized. We thought it was his yearly tradition of getting pneumonia, his brother said. Family doesn't know what happened, but Gallagher needed oxygen and was being transported to the hospital for emergency treatment when he went into cardiac arrest. They couldn't bring him back, his brother said. The family made the decision to hold his funeral in Buffalo. The wake was held in Long Island, and dozens of troopers on motorcycles formed a motorcade to accompany his hearse back to western New York. The Reverend said the support by the state police throughout the family's ordeal has been extraordinary. Words cannot express how grateful we are to the New York State troopers, he said. They were so dedicated to being there for us. Gallagher presided at his brother's mass. I always thought this is the funeral I would offer one day. He said, not at this point. Joseph Gallagher's loved ones hope a lesson can be learned from their tragic loss. When you're on the road, it's not just you, his brother said. When you hit somebody, you're not just taking away that person's life. You're taking away in some way the life of their spouse, the life of their children. It's not fair to have to put a child through the loss of a mother or father because he was texting. Today's show is dedicated to Trooper Joseph Gallagher. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our nation. From the birth of this nation through today, we also dedicate all the men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement like Joseph Gallagher, emergency service, or firefighters. May God bless each and every one, and we dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herendon, My Name is America. Of oppression, 
I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and defend Because my name is America I stand for my respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power, but their vicious deeds become my finest hour because my name is America. I stand for. on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, iHeart, I, oh, whatever. We're all over the place. Anyway, just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm Annie, the radio chickadee, along with my courageous and, oh, 
absolutely insane co-host Curtis C.S. Bennett. <laughs> Curtis, we've got a great guest here uh, waiting on the line. Let's bring her on. Her name is Suze. The, the, the teeth didn't break. I, I cannot talk today. Holy moly. Susie. What did I do? Put my, de- <laughs> put my dentist in back? Susie Schaefer. Yes. And Welcome she to the is, show. Yes, she is. She's with... Um, Oh, God. Aris. I'm sorry, Susie. I am messing up left and right. Uh, Aris. Oh, it's quite all right. You're not the first one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's Friday, thank God. Uh, But but I have been, I I actually got excited listening to the news for the first time. The first time I heard any elected official to Congress or Senate mentioned the HIPAA Act in dealing with the vaccine mandates. Representative out of Florida, Donald, said it on Newsmax. I stopped. I was pointing at the TV. I was cheering. If my leg wasn't that bad, I was, would have been jumping up and down. Finally, someone gets it. Why didn't anyone throughout this whole thing ever pull out the HIPAA Act? Well, I can explain a little bit about that. Um <laughs> So, um, well, yes, I mean, I, um, I've been doing HIPAA compliance for over 12 years and it's, it's a little confusing and, um, do you want me to start right in or? Oh yes, go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, here's the point. Um, there's a fine line between HIPAA and the rest of the world. And let me just explain to you who must adhere to HIPAA. And basically, HIPAA is an agreement between healthcare providers and their patients. And the healthcare providers, they have to conduct certain transactions to be considered a healthcare provider or a covered entity. And that includes electronic billing and some other things. But all of the covered entities are like doctors, clinics, hospitals, nursing homes, pharmacists, dentists, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then the Office for Civil Rights, the OCR, who enforces HIPAA, uh, has even started finding cash practices over what we call privacy violations. And that means like if a patient were to go to their plastic surgeon and ask for a copy of their medical records and they were not uh, given a copy in a timely manner because there is a time limit. Um, It's called um, the right of access. Uh, A plastic surgeon was actually fined for that even though they did not do any transactions electronically as far as medical billing or anything like that. So they are definitely spreading a a larger cast net to – I should not say this out loud, but to make more money because uh, HIPAA violations are a money-making machine for them. And with this administration, they are (laughs) spending an awful lot of money and they got to make it up somewhere. But uh, aside from that, the other entities that have to follow HIPAA are their business associates. And these are the companies that um, help doctor's offices run their operations such as like IT companies, medical billing, um, accountants, attorneys, and uh, companies that may store or destroy uh, medical records or equipment, all those kind of things. Now I want to cover who doesn't have to follow HIPAA because this is is the kicker, and please don't kill the messenger because I didn't make the rules. (laughs) Um, So 
some of the people that do not have to follow HIPAA are like workers' comp carriers, um, schools, many state agencies, you know, like, oh, um, Child Protective Services, that kind of stuff, most law enforcement agencies. But the sad part is employers are included in that, even though they may have uh, medical information on their employees. So the HIPAA privacy rule does not protect employment records. Now, however, state laws require employers and any other company that retains personal identifiable information to protect this data. And the state can impose fines for, for violations. You know, it, it's a little different, but it's because the state laws are different than federal laws. And I'm going to add one more caveat to that is if you are a covered entity, a medical provider, um, you have to follow both, whichever one is more stringent. Uh, for example, federal HIPAA law says that a doctor's office has 60 days to notify their patients in the event of a data breach of over 500 records. Florida law says you only have 30 days. So in that case, you have to follow the, the, the state law because it's more stringent. Now we're going to talk about employers. <laughs> you know, with this, um, everything that's going on, employers have the right to ask if their employees are vaccinated. The employees have the right not to answer. The employer has the right to terminate the employee. But I will tell you right now, I would not quit because, as you were just mentioning, states are now getting involved, starting to bring in privacy rights. And, and HIP, well, it's not really HIPAA, but it's, it's privacy rights for, for employees and, and uh, residents of the state. So I would not quit. Uh, I would make them fire me to see how this is all going to play out at the end of the day. Um, and the way, I mean, the way this came about, I'm going to digress for just a second. I'm going to go back to February of 2020 when the Office for Civil Rights issued a statement on the novel coronavirus, because at that time they hadn't started calling it COVID-19 yet. It was still the novel uh, virus. Anyway, when they announced that, that this was going to be a health problem, uh, so therefore covered entities, doctor's offices, they no longer need an authorization from a patient to share your personal information with a public health authority. And a public health authority is, they can be state and local, but you'll know the names, CDC, FDA, OSHA, you know, the OSHA is how this administration is trying to push through these vaccine mandates. So when they made, announced this, that this was a public health emergency, <clears throat> unfortunately HIPAA went out the window. Um, because the privacy rule covers the covered entities to disclose information to their patients, that's a, that's a privacy thing. But once they, in, they introduce this uh, virus that's a public health or global health problem, then the, all of the, our privacy rights went out the window. The most disturbing of this is the fact that the covered entities, doctors, uh, uh, our doctors, at the direction of a public health authority, 
such as the CDC, may disclose our personal information to a foreign government if they are collaborating with the health authority. And that's really disturbing to me, knowing that, you know, some of our adversaries may have our information. Now, the problem with that is most doctor's offices were not equipped to handle the what, what, they, what we call the minimum necessary standard, because the minimum necessary standard says that the doctor's office only releases what is necessary to complete the task at hand. Well, if the doctor's office didn't have those protocols in place before this happened, they may have inadvertently released more information than necessary. And I know the CDC isn't going to say, oh, we don't need all of that because they'll take anything they can get, in my opinion. So <laughs> that's kind of where we're at in a nutshell um, bringing you forward. I hope that with the different states bringing lawsuits against this administration for our privacy rights, I hope something can be done about this. So in you other know, words, in one swell – fell swoop when it, as soon as they made that announcement that it is a pandemic uh when the president said it's an emergency our constitutional rights to be safe and our persons and papers went straight out the window they altered the constitution without an actual amendment to it they broke the constitution absolutely but i'm not a constitutional law attorney so I can't really comment on that. I can only talk about the rules and regulations of the HIPAA privacy and security laws and the state laws. Um, but I agree with you because what happened to our privacy? You know, that is given to us by our founding fathers, and slowly but surely they are stripping away more and more of our, our rights. And, you know, I just have to add, this is not about – the vaccinated against the unvaccinated because we have to stand together because what's happening, what's going to happen is what are they going to take away next? You know, they're, they're forcing people right now to choose between putting food on their table and going to work every day and taking an, uh, an unfounded vaccine. Now I have many, many of my friends that have taken vaccines. And I don't, I don't, I'm not opposed to that. If you feel that that's what you need to do to be safe, absolutely. But what, like what we also talk about is what about natural immunity? What about holistic medicine? You know, Curtis and I have talked about holistic medicine, and we are both on the same page with that. You know, I don't believe that someone should put something foreign in another person's body without their consent. Go ahead, Curtis. Now, my... My views on them taking the liberties that they have taken, I think whenever they they come off like they're coming off, there should be incorporated um, some kind of threshold. In other words, we'll declare this a national crisis if 40% of the American population is uh, affected. I even go as low as 25%. But for something less than 1%, that, you know, the population being affected by it, it, it doesn't justify this this crisis mode that we're in. And, and not only that, to uh, destroy the world's greatest economy doesn't make sense well, to I, me. So there well, should be thresholds they need to meet. Absolutely, Curtis. But here's the issue. 
when this when this was announced, they didn't have enough information about this, and they were listening to <laughs> Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci is like, you know, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Well, keep in mind, in the beginning, he said, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, we don't have to lock down. But uh, President Trump locked down from China, and I believe that that's what saved so many human lives. But I agree with you. At that time, we didn't know that, you know, uh, less than, you know, 2% of the, or like 2.1% of the people would truly be affected by this. They didn't add that you had to have underlying issues and they just rushed to lock down. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but early on there were um, doctors out there stating that if we lock down and mask up, we are going to kill our immune system and when we come back, we are going to have a worse breakout. And if my memory serves me correctly, that's exactly what happened. Well, I'm not sure what happened to Andy, but I tend to agree oh. in all facets of that. Oh, you know, sorry. I muted myself. Sorry. <laughs> I forgot how they, to use They told us one thing at first, like, if we pull together and and just, you know, wear the mask and social distance for 14 days, we should be all right. Then after that, they kept moving the goalposts until it, it became uh, – you know, almost Marxist, like, you know, you you yeah. have to take it or you're going to take it. You know, we're going to make sure you take it or you will be penalized or you will lose your job or you won't be able to travel. That's not the way we do things here in, in America. It's not in our DNA um, to, to, you know, have somebody tell us what we're going to do. I mean, we stood up to King George back in the day. You know, I mean, these folks here, I don't know who they think they are, but. I think um, they have to be concerned after Virginia the other day, and I think there's more there to come. People are fighting oh, yeah. back on both sides. So that's my two cents. No, I, and I, I agree with you 100%. I, uh, I think you're going to see a lot more of uh, changes to come because of what is, what is happening. And, you know, regardless of who you voted for, you know, this isn't, uh, us against them or them against us. This is the United States of America, as you mentioned, Curtis. I mean, we are founded on our our godly beliefs and our our individual freedoms. You know, this isn't this isn't up to the government. That, you know, unless they're going to uh, take away our constitution, like Annie said. You know, they're they're going against our constitution. And um, I will tell you, I'm going to go back and study that a little bit more. <laughs> well, you know, I, I have a couple of statistics here. And uh, ours, the uh, Vaccine Adverse Reaction Report that the CDC puts out, um, as of September, they released this report. So it's not of September. It's from you know, previous years. So we don't have the total numbers as of today. But this report they released in September, the number of people that died from the COVID vaccine, just from the COVID vaccine, is 16,766. That's not a small number. The hospitalizations for the adverse reactions, 79,669. 
those that needed urgent care that were not hospitalized but still needed urgent care, 89,923. The doctor office visits from people who had the adverse reaction, 124,398. Those that went into anaphylactic shock, and I carried an EpiPen because I was just hospitalized exactly two weeks ago, which is why I wasn't live. I had went into anaphylactic shock from an from a prescription medication I've been taking for years, and the doctors. I'm trying to tell where my EpiPen was, and the damn doctor couldn't find it. Uh, 7,336. And what is this? Oh, the ones that ended up with the Bell's palsy, one of the adverse reactions that affects your uh, nervous and muscular system, 9,787. And the numbers continue. Miscarriages from the vaccine, 2,508. Heart attacks. And I suffer from a heart condition, 8,136. Those from myocarditis, 9,470. Those that were permanently disabled, 24,805. Those with thrombosis, that is a blood clot, and low platelets, 3,735. And I had too many strokes. Life-threatening reactions, other than these, 18,238. Those with severe allergic reaction, I'm a good candidate for that one. 31,196. And finally, those with shingles. And I had the chicken pox when I was a kid, so I am prone to getting shingles. 9,472. So when you add all these numbers up, the total is 700,098, 634 adverse reactions reported to the CDC. These are the ones that were reported to the CDC. We don't know how many the hospitals didn't report because they didn't want the information to get out. Yes. So you're talking that's about was, over three-quarter of a million. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was hearing that the VARS reports weren't even accurate because so many hospitals didn't have the time to report the adverse um, effects because they were too busy trying to take care of their patients. Yes. So, you know, that is. Yeah. So, well, Annie, I, you know what? I had to tell you what, I, I, uh, I'd love to have that information. I mean, I was trying to jot down some notes while you were talking because um, I don't have that information and that's, you know, that's very good information to know because there again, you know, if you, I know many, many people that have had the vaccine and that have not had an adverse reaction other than getting pretty sick uh, for a few days. But to know all these other people have had these effects, that's, that's frightening. That's very frightening. Well, you, you think that's frightening? Catch this. This is going to be the rate among persons vaccinated with two doses compared to um, those that are not vaccinated uh, by age. Now, these are the people that ended up with COVID. We're not talking about deaths at at this point, just those that ended up with COVID. Now, the number is very high for those under the age of 18. Um, 
All right, the total that came under the ones that really, really matter. Now, those that are from the age of 30 up to over 80. Now, these numbers are very, very interesting, and a lot of listeners fall into this. Uh, between the age of 40 to 49, there was a total of 130,904 cases of COVID. Those that were not vaccinated was less than 10%, 13,022. All right, those that received a, a second dose and were over 14 a day having the, the thing, the number of that got COVID 106,492. Now, mind you, it was 130,000 total in getting COVID. Out of that, 106 had the full vaccination. And this chart would rock your socks off. I'll send the links to you uh, uh, later on, Susie. Uh, I would love that. How the unvaccinated have a less instance of getting COVID than those that were vaccinated with one, two, the entire thing? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. You're not going to see me getting the vaccination because of my heart condition, uh, because of the fact I had a stroke, and I am prone to allergic reactions. I mean, like I said, Thursday, I was perfectly fine. I was putting around the house. I went to the chiropractor. I had my back snapped. I came home, took a muscle relaxant. Less than 10 minutes later, I couldn't even raise my arms. I was lucky I was able to dial 911. And my mom, 89 years old, stroke victim, is pushing her walker towards me. She goes, here, let me help you to the door. Because I had already called 911. It's like, mom, mom, just get out of the way. We know what we're doing. This is what we did for a living. Because I was a retired cop. I says, I know what they're going to do. They're going to have to physically pick me up. And I got the hand marks, the bruises from where they picked me up. But I get oh. to the hospital, and you'd love this, Susan. I get to the hospital, I they want to do a CT scan with the contrast, and I have gave them, I wear a medical alert bracelet. I gave them my bracelet about seven times. I said, I'm allergic to iodine. You give me a contrast. you got to give me the steroid. No less than five minutes. Ten minutes before is the optimum. You need to give me the steroid first, otherwise I'll have a bad reaction. Oh, no, no, no. This is a brand-new cocktail, they said. It's combined. It's all in one shot. As soon as they gave me the shot, within seconds, I started going into anaphylactic shock. I couldn't breathe. I was spasming. I'm trying to tell them the EpiPen is in the outside pocket of my purse, and I have it in the outside pocket so I can easily get to it. Ah, two allergic reactions in just a matter of a couple of hours. Uh, so they were not going to report this as an allergic reaction until the doctor went over all the medical, alert, medical records. They were going to say I had a panic attack. <laughs> you know, me having a panic attack? Are you freaking crazy? <laughs> Never had a panic oh. attack in my life. And finally the doctor said, yeah, you had two allergic reactions. And we're changing the protocols in the ER. I said, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're lucky that, uh, well, I'm not going to say it. You're very lucky. I'm, that's all I'm going to say. Because <laughs> I mean, and I'm I'm glad you survived. I mean, and I, 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 I am absolutely astounded because I mean I still feel that we have wonderful health care in the United States. I just um, unfortunately I think a lot of our doctors uh, their hands are tied with uh, the the new 
protocols, quote unquote, that they have to follow. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is absolutely amazing what they do. Um, but like I said, the HIPAA Act is there to protect us, but they have twisted it in so many different ways that it no yeah, longer has its original it. purpose. Yeah, it no longer has mm. its original purpose of protecting you. So now you go to a restaurant and you got to show a vaccine passport just to have a meal? Are you kidding me? Oh, absolutely not. In fact, um, I'm a member of a wonderful uh, conservative women's group here locally, and once a week we go out and have lunch. And we had a wonderful lunch uh, yesterday, and it was a cute little shop right next door. And several of us were like, oh, I'd love to go in there. And then there's a sign out there that says, you know, masks are required. If you don't have one, we'll give you one. Well, we walked away. They weren't asking us for our vaccine passport, but they were asking us to wear a mask, whereas that's not required here. You know, and if I, if you are scared, wear a mask. If you're scared, get a vaccine. But the rest of us shouldn't be lumped together because out of their fears, in my humble opinion. <laughs> and that's true because I'm going to tell you, uh, there's more people dying from pneumonia and influenza than COVID. And, I mean, if COVID was so bad, why wasn't it even in the top 10, not even in the top 20? Um, at the end of last year. Now, they snuck it into the top 10 now because a lot of people were discovering that it wasn't even, you know, in that range. But still, you know, we have people who are dying from cancer and heart attacks, and we haven't declared a national emergency over any of that. I mean, we got we got violence in some of our urban cities that most people wouldn't dare go to because it's not good for their, their health. <laughs> to walk through these areas. So, yeah. you know, but we haven't declared that a national emergency. And hepatitis yeah. C, when you, you think of diseases and things, that's contagious and deadly too. And you can catch it from anywhere. You know, I, I cringe when somebody used the laboratory and then they walk straight out without washing their hands. I always use a yeah. towel to open the, the doorknob. But still, we haven't declared an emergency over hepatitis C. And as far as I know, there's no cure for it. So this is all political, I believe, and there's an agenda behind it, no doubt. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and you, you make a valid point, you know, um, the, the number of deaths and now in the top ten. But don't forget, uh, a lot of people were labeled as a COVID death, and let's face it, they were already in hospice. You know, the joke was, oh, you know, they were in a car accident and died. Well, let's test them for COVID, you know. But, I mean, that's no joke. I mean, they're actually, they, the numbers for COVID deaths were so greatly inflated, I think, uh, just because of the incentives. I don't think that, well, I don't want to use that word, but, you know, doc, you know, hospitals were paid more to take care of COVID patients, you know, and, um Hospitals are a for-profit entity nowadays. Yeah, that's funny because the first thing I did as soon as I got my husband's death certificate uh, after he passed away on June 30th, I made I looked at it and it was they labeled his death as by cancer, and he was tested in the ER as they were working on him for COVID. He came back negative. They tested me, and I got to say one thing, you know, um, 
I, I sent you that uh, uh, brochure that I, I carried around with you, Susie. And um, yes. there was a time, a couple of months before he passed, I had to take him to the hospital for some medical testing prior to a new surgery. And I can't wear a mask. I went to my doctor. I kept on getting sick. I didn't know why. And he says, you're one of the ones, you're one in a million that just cannot wear the mask. He says, get yourself a face shield, but make sure that you sanitize it every time you use it. And he says, no problem. So I carry several of them, and I carry my, my sanitizer with me. So I go into the hospital. I've never been bothered by this before, been wearing it for like nine months. Suddenly I got this one security guard with something up his butt against me, and he kept on looking up at the little divider. My picture must have been hanging there, I swear. And then at the... <laughs> And he allows us to go in to register for the test. And the next thing I know, he's running down the hall after me, going, Mrs. Jubelis, Mrs. Jubelis, you've got to put a mask on. And I says, I explained to you, I showed you the letter from my doctor. I have been allowed to come in here with this face shield. I cannot wear the mask. And then that's when he turned around and says, why can't you wear a mask? Now, I cited the HIPAA Act when I said that to him. Because he's mm-hmm. not a part of the medical community. He's a security guard. So he should not have yep. any access to my medical records. And I turned around to him and I said, sir, you're aware that you violated the HIPAA Act. And it faces a penalty of um, $25,000 or up to $1.5 million per violation and a possible up to 10 years in jail. And he turned around and goes, well, you have to leave now. And I said, sir, uh, I'm, my husband is wheelchair bound. He can't walk. I myself am disabled. Well, that doesn't matter. You don't wear a mask. You've got to leave. And I says, you just violated the American with Disabilities Act. And I cited yes. the penalties on that one also um, where, you know, I forgot what the heck they are. But um, I was tossed out of the hospital. I waited a couple of days, and I finally wrote to the chief surgeon, and the CEO of the hospital explaining everything that happened. And I said, if anything, someone like me knows the dangers of not wearing the proper equipment. I said, I was a police officer in New York City at the height of the AIDS epidemic. And we were ostracized because we would wear gloves and carry sanitizing stuff with us, alcohol wipes and everything. So we had to be careful when we were handling these people and most of the time, they were drug addicts and hookers that had AIDS. If anyone would know the need to do that would be me. Within less than 24 hours, he was retraining the staff on the proper protocols. I had no problem after that. And he called me personally on the phone. He goes, this is my private cell phone number. And if you ever have another problem, call me immediately. You know, knowing the Good law. Good for you. Knowing, wow. Knowing the HIPAA Act. Knowing- no, and I, I gave you that brochure. I also used this on my county council when they were trying to do mask mandates. And I got the ca- it killed. I got it killed. Good. If you know the law, and if you know what, what they can and cannot do, it can save you a lot of problems. So, Suze, people should, be able, people should go to your go website, which is Aris Medical Solutions. You also have on there... Very quickly, because we've got our next guest waiting in the wings, um, something called a Savvy Card. And people can log in there and learn more, because you also do training sessions, correct? 
Yes, mm-hmm. we sure do. Well, we're gonna have and, to have and you if you come go back. to the HIPAA, if they go to oh, the HIPAA sorry. education tab, they can read a lot. There's a lot of information there as well. All right. Well, I put aside those two uh, stat sheets for you. I will email them to you, if not today, tomorrow. Um, and feel free to call me because you know you got my my email. And we can talk some more and have you come back on the show because there's so much more to talk about this subject. Yes, there is. And thank you so much for having me. Curtis, thank you for the invitation. And I have thoroughly enjoyed myself. And, yes, I'd love to come back on. And I look forward to uh, spending some more time with you, Annie and Curtis. All right, thank Susie. You. All right. God bless for yeah. the hard work you do. All right. God bless both of you. Yes. Bye for All now. Okay. All right, Suze Schaefer, check her out at arismedicalsolutions.com. And we've got our next victim up in the bullpen. He was supposed to be with us two weeks ago, but I had the misfortune of messing up the entire show by ending up in the emergency room. So let's bring along uh, Professor Lawrence Mead of NYU. He's got a new book out, which is called Burdens of Freedom, Cultural Difference, and the American Power. He is also the host of a podcast you can find called Poverty and Culture. Good afternoon, Professor Mead. How are you today? Uh, very well. And, and, and how are you doing? Are you, you got out of the emergency room, I gather. <laughs> I got out of the emergency room. It was a friggin' nightmare. Uh, they had, at one point, they were waking me up every five minutes. They were in the room. I actually looked at my watch, and I said, Five, four, three, two, one. In came the next person. It was either blood or a test or, yeah. or taking your vitals. Finally, at 7 o'clock in the morning, the doctor finally comes in and says, you had two bad re- allergic reactions. And I'm like, no shit, Sherlock. Huh. <laughs> but in the end result is um, I now have a pinched nerve in my back from the fall I took, which ended up me taking, making me take the medication that caused the allergic reaction. And I felt so hard uh-huh. that the knee replacement I knew I had to get replaced eventually now has to be replaced immediately. So Well wow. <laughs> I'm having fun. Otherwise, how are you? Uh pretty good. Pretty good. Uh well I was actually texting uh Vito who was co hosting for me with my co host here, um the information and I forgot to give them your, your information to call you I, I wanted them to tell you just getting through the first three chapters of your book took me six hours i'm not joking i got <laughs> no pages of notes yeah. on just the first three chapters uh, i know it's a, it it there are about five ideas in every page that's true and most of it you never read before uh, it really is uh an original work that's all i can say many people have told me this uh, I have to say that's I wanted to get the argument down, and I did. And uh, I I have not found any anything I would change. Uh, I haven't dealt with a lot of criticism. Uh, on the contrary, it, it's really quite a radical argument, and yet it does appear to be uh, passing muster. So I'm hoping to uh, have a lot more discussion of cultural differences. I call it. Well, you know, uh, you are in New York City. I'm a retired New York City police officer, as you heard. I mean, how yeah. the heck are you getting... Th- I mean, I look at what is going on in there, and under Giuliani, we cleaned that city up. We helped bring yeah. in gentrification, and I'm looking yeah. at what 
de Blasio has done and what Cuomo has done to the state. And I'm going, I- I- I'm sorry, where is the American spirit that built this country? Where are the people that should yeah. be rising up and say, stop the madness, you idiots? Where are they? Well, I, I, I wouldn't say that what de Blasio is doing is unusual for a liberal. He represents a view of our problems, which... I don't share, but on the other hand, it does have some support in the mass public, as we saw in the election several days ago. Uh, those views are being rebuked, rebuked right now by the public, and uh, I'm looking forward, I hope anyway, to a further shift to the right in the next election. So we shouldn't be intimidated by the liberal viewpoint. I think they can be answered, and they are being answered. Well, I'm I'm not too sure about the individual that has been elected. Um, he was the former New York City or uh, was he a chief or something like that. And uh, he he had stated he was going to continue with the vaccine and mask mandates. Now, my friend, who happens to be the PBA president, I worked with him, uh, Patty Lynch, uh, has filed a lawsuit. So we're waiting to see whether or not these men and women get to keep their job. Uh, yeah. But our individual freedoms, our ability to choose what goes in our body and what doesn't. Yeah. I mean, with, with the pro-choice movement, it's my body, my choice. Now, suddenly, when we say it's my body, my choice, you don't have individualism. No. You have to follow the mass thing. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things I argue in my book and also in the uh, article about Afghanistan, which uh, we've talked about previously, is that freedom actually depends on obligation. Uh, the United States is a free country, but freedom requires that individuals internalize a whole set of norms about good behavior, which allow them to be free uh, and and also to be orderly and to have a dynamic society. Those things are not easily combined and the Western world is really the only place in the world, with a couple of exceptions, which has been able to combine order and freedom. Uh, in Afghanistan, you see a case of the total triumph of disorder over freedom and order. Uh, that's a country which doesn't really have a government. Uh, and even under the Taliban, they're really not going to have a government in any Western sense. Whereas the U.S. is a government which is very powerful, you might say too powerful, but it's able to do extraordinary things. And that depends upon a society where people keep the government under control. They're always critical, and, and as we saw in the election, there can be a real uh, comeuppance for people in Washington who have a little bit too full of themselves. I think that's what we can say happened in the election. Uh, but at the same time, this is a government that can that can predict project power to the other ends of the earth. It can send people to rescue thousands of people out of Afghanistan, as we saw. And that we also need. So the what's strange about America is this ability to combine order and freedom. Uh, and that is exceptional. We shouldn't imagine that that's easy. It's quite difficult. Uh, now, you mentioned in the book the difference between Western thinking and others that are non-Western, yeah. be they Oriental, yes. whatever. Um, but yeah. you also give a little bit of the history on how we became individualistic. 
And actually, yes. um, you can go back to Socrates and Plato. And I have to tell you, and I'm going to put up in front of the camera because we are live on video on uh, Facebook and YouTube. I've got the essential Plato, which includes the Republic. Uh, and yeah. it's been a while since I've read this whole thing. And how many pages is this dang thing? Um, uh, over 1,300 pages. <laughs> but I, I distinctly remember reading The Republic, and I'm saying, now I understand where a lot of this thought that traveled up into Europe from the Greeks and the Romans, this idea of uh, a parliamentary type of government. With the Romans, they had the mm-hmm. Senate. And as it made its way up into England, and England, more than any other European country, became fiercely more independent than any other nation. Even though they were a monarchy at the time, uh, it was King Harold that recognized that individuals, not just the, the royalty, but all of the people within the kingdom, have certain rights of self-defense, yes. of property. Yes. And he codified English common law. And little known, there is a college upstate New York named after King Harold. <laughs> huh. King huh. Harold, I mean, really? Yeah, see, that in, in, in England, you begin to see at a very early point, really from the foundation of the kingdom in the ninth century, you see this ability to combine freedom and order. Uh, from the very beginning, the English have rule by law, and also rule by parliament or some kind of consent structure. So the kings are very unusually powerful for Europe. At the same time, they are really answerable to the society. And eventually you get a parliamentary regime where, to this day, the, the king's government depends upon having majorities in the House of Commons. And they have to have that before they can actually rule the country. But when they have that, they have extraordinary authority. And this ability is very strange. We find the, we find it also in the rest of Europe. A little later, they don't they don't get it all solved by as early as the English, but they get it solved. And today we find this these countries that are strongly governed, but also democratic, where there are individual rights, where you have all kinds of claims against government, but at the same time people obey their taxes and they obey the law, and so we have regimes that are able to govern and to do the things that our government does. So it isn't just small government here. On the contrary, it's a very strong government, which is accountable to the people. And that requires a certain psychology, which really only the Western world has, where you combine personal assertiveness with a commitment to inner goals about freedom and order that you internalize at a very young age. Things like the Ten Commandments. That's even more fundamental than Socrates. And, I mean, the Greeks... The Greeks are doing as you say. The Greeks are questioners. See, in most of the world, the cultures are top-down, authoritative. They tell people what to do, what to believe, and so on and so on. Whereas, and that's, there's a, certainly an element of that in the West, but the emphasis on questioning is fundamental. And we have this. It's also found in the Bible, a very early point, the Old Testament, the prophets, they are people who question authority. And yet somehow that leads to stronger government than regimes where you don't have questioning. And this is why the West is unusual. You don't really find this anywhere else. 
And that's why we, we, we take it too readily for granted. We don't achieve, we don't really realize uh, how unusual this is. One of the reasons is that the American founders inherited their institutions from the British, and therefore they never had to develop the fundamentals of good government. They had it from the very beginning. And so they think it's easy. Americans think it's easy. Uh, if we want democracy, we should throw out the despots and hold elections. But that doesn't solve anything in countries where you don't have the right culture. Exactly. And it, it, because it was so unusual through the English culture. And at one point, uh, they revolted against the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church, again, yes. is top. The Pope, he dictates and everyone follows. Yet Martin Luther well, turned that completely yeah, on its right. head and said it is the common man because it is that connection between God yeah. and man that comes first. And then we give that, you that's the right. power to, to govern, but we restrict that power. And Martin Luther yes. put that thought in there. And it was Christianity yep. that helped to bring, bring, bring back and bring out this ideal. Yeah. In fact, the Catholic Church, although it does have a hierarchical structure with the Pope and the bishops and so on, although that's true, it also encouraged questioning and reformism. So in the medieval period, you have a number of reform movements that sweep over the Catholic Church before the Reformation. So the Catholics are, are not completely top-down authority. They do also appeal to individual conscience. And in, in the United States today, we have our, our Catholic Church here is given over to questioning to a great extent, and more so than in the rest of the world. And in fact, the Catholic hierarchy has a hard time dealing with the American church because it is so willing to question. And, and it's, in fact, more Protestant than the rest of the Catholic church. And so Christianity has been a great force for individualism. That's certainly true. But it goes way back. Uh, there really has never been a time when the Western world wasn't given over to some version of questioning. It's true. But yet you write in your book, in, in the introduction, that yeah. today our chief challenge comes from groups within our society and nations abroad yeah. who are not individualistic. And you, hear, you see right. that with the cancel culture. You see that where you must yeah. get the vaccine or you lose your job. You don't, won't have a job. You can't feed your family. So, therefore, you must do as I say, not what you well, want to do. Well, the, the, that the, that's true. The, the vaccine has involved some top-down direction. There's no question about that. But remember, those rules are being written by the states. Uh, the federal government actually doesn't have authority to worry about that. It's actually the governors who are setting the rules. They may be wrong about it. There's a lot of variation around the country. But it's important that we have that capacity to protect public order when we have to do something. And I think in this case... With, the, with COVID-19, you do have to have some restrictions. Now, at this point, they should be eased. I mean, I think we have too many restrictions at NYU. I think we should loosen up a bit. Uh, so we, we, we can't allow it to go on forever. Uh, but the, the capacity to do that is very important. Uh, and therefore, I'm fundamentally accepting of the idea, even though in this, in this case, as I say, we should ease up a little bit. Well, actually, I've got to say that Governor McMaster here in South Carolina just the other day said, I'm telling you right now, we're not going to put up with the federal government. There will not be a mandate here. And I'm telling you, do not comply with the federal government. 
And he said, we're staying yeah. open. We're not mandating the vaccine. And no one should be fired because they are not okay. taking it. And that the, okay. these Republican governors are starting to stand up. I do believe DeSantis has already done it. Now uh, our McMaster's here in South Carolina. It's going to mm-hmm. spread wildfire. The American spirit is still alive. And you talk about that yep. in your book. Yep. Yep. Uh, but again, we have... Although we do question government, we also have a very strong government, and we do need it for some purposes, and uh, that is unusual. Uh, So we should be very fortunate. We should realize how fortunate this is. Most countries have to choose between freedom or order. They can't have both. Uh, That's what you find in most of the non-Western world. You have regimes that are authoritarian, which tell people what to do, which don't really have elections, don't really have political freedoms. But those governments are also very weak, actually. They don't really control their territories. And Afghanistan is an extreme case, so the government simply collapsed. So these governments appear to be, you'd think they'd be stronger because no one's questioning. But actually, they're weaker. Uh, And it's in the West that you find this remarkable combination of people who question government, but at the same time, they obey government when it's behaving well. And we do need that. And it's that combination that the rest of the world is searching for. And unfortunately, they don't have it. Non-Western culture doesn't provide the same social and cultural basis for this that we find in the West. So we're very fortunate, and we're really not conscious of that. Well, we have another problem here that you write about extensively in the book, and this was created in the 1960s when they said, we're going to turn around and give you these handouts, and in exchange, mm-hmm. you're going to keep voting for us. And the handouts mm. started off being um, welfare, Social Security. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, I've got to say, Social Security is totally not a handout. That's my money I earned, no. the government held. That's right. I paid. I paid into. Yep. That. I could have taken that money, put it into an investment or into a bank account, and get yeah. double or triple of what the government well, is handing back to us. That that you can make that argument, but the basic fact is, Social Security is contributory. That is, people who draw the benefit when they retire have been paying into the system while they were working. And that's also true for unemployment insurance. It's also true for the Medicare system. So Americans like benefits where the government may organize it. But in fact, uh, these benefits are based upon contributions by the recipients. And therefore, they're not seen as welfare. And we also have welfare. But welfare is typically given to people without a work requirement, without a presumption that you're employed or have a work history. And in fact, Congress is now... Uh, eliminated the work requirement that we instituted in cash welfare for families back in the 90s. That's a big mistake. They shouldn't have done that. I think if Congress uh, reverts to Republican control, which I think will probably happen in the next election, we ought to go back to requiring work for people who are getting benefits. So Americans are really not averse to getting help from the government, provided that they themselves have contributed to it, because that allows us to say, and and it's real, that we are ourselves still supporting ourselves. We get help from government in certain ways, but we are also in the labor force. We contribute to the social activity of supporting ourselves, and Americans do believe in that. Well, we also have a segment of our society that once they got the hand out, they never... 
they never turned around and says, well, maybe I should look for work. Instead, mm. there are actually videos up on YouTube, and I actually a couple of years found one of those, and it blew my mind. I played it on air, and it, she's telling everyone how to get the free phone, how to get Section 8 yeah. housing, how yeah. to get food stamps, how to get the welfare. Yeah. And then the other benefits, that if you go to, and take a college course, you can take the college course for free. It doesn't matter what it is. It is just a benefit that you're going to get for free college, whether it's basket weaving yeah. or picking your nose, uh, <laughs> they, you get an extra benefit because now you're a college yeah. student. And I watched well, the list of what she went down and whatever happened to say, hand up, not hand out. Uh, well, I actually, I mean, this is the kind of, this is ironic, but the advocates who, who talk like you've just described they're actually not representative of the people they they claim to speak for. Actually, most poor people wish they were working. They're not actually doing it as often as they should, but they think they should, and they don't talk like that. They don't think they have rights to benefits regardless of how they live. Uh, in fact, they ought to be working, and they don't often do it, so they're not consistent. They have these values which they don't often live by. It's the advocates who say, you should have a right to welfare without doing anything. Most people don't believe that. And including poor people, they also think they should be part of the labor force. And, and why they don't actually do it is the great question in, in anti-poverty policy. I think we made some progress in moving towards work requirements in the 90s. We need to get back there. Well, you know, I, I was watching this as I grew through the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the, the new millennia. And I've watched a change in our society. And in the past, there wasn't a big group of people that had that victim mentality. You uh-huh. owe me. And my older brother pulled that on my parents one day. He goes, I didn't ask to be born. You owe me. And I looked mm-hmm. at him as if he had 15 different heads. And it's like, yeah. I don't think anyone ever except our Lord Jesus has ever asked to be born. I mean, you are placed here, and it's what you do with your life that shows who you are. But this victim mentality is out there to the point where now, through Black Lives Matter and critical race theory, I am someone simply because I was born with this color of skin. No one asked to be born. No one asked to be born where, when, or to what ethnic. Yeah. Yeah. Gender yeah. Critical, uh, critical race theory, I think, reflects the pessimism, the pessimism of the non-Western world about the capacity for individual progress. They, in fact, have not experienced this in, the, in those parts of the world, so they don't really believe in it. And you can turn that into an ideology, which is what critical race theory really says, is that if you're from certain groups, uh, you're actually powerless. And, and in fact, all power is held by white people. Now, that isn't true, but that's what one is likely to believe coming out of a culture of defeat, which is really what you see in much of the non-Western world. And that's not anybody's fault. That's just the way they have lived. That's their culture. And it's very different from the Western culture, where the belief in individual action is much stronger. And that's fortunate, because this is why we have the dynamism of the society that we have. That's why we have constant improvement, and that's why things keep getting better. And sometimes things go wrong, of course. But we have a whole lot of people involved in making things better. 
And that requires a belief that an individual life is meaningful and that you're not just a, a victim. You're not just trapped in a certain life. You can take action against it. And the country is set up on the supposition that you're going to do that. And we have opportunities to do that. But they require effort and focus. You have to dedicate your life to a certain goal. And so in that sense, the person who seeks to get ahead, in a sense, is less free than the person who doesn't because you have to organize your life around your mission. And that's hard. And, and, and that's difficult. I wouldn't for a moment say that it's easy, but that's what makes this country special. So the ideology of powerlessness is, is one that we have to say, this isn't true of America. We are not like this. But much of the, much of the rest of the world is like this. And those groups, those societies have to decide if they really want to shoulder the burdens of freedom. If you just want to exist and get through life, which is what many people do, then, okay, that's, that's what's given to you. All right, fine. But that's not America. If you come here, you should take on the burdens of freedom. Exactly. There's the easy way out, the lazy way. I, uh, I don't want to think. You just tell me. I, I, you tell me what food to eat. You tell me what clothing to wear. You tell me what to do. And all of a sudden now, um, you cannot be a baker. You are actually the son of a ironsmith. So guess what? Yeah. Your last name is Ironsmith Son. Didn't the Scandinavians do that? That whatever your your father was, if he was a shoot yeah. a horse or you know what you know what I'm talking about. But they would put yeah. son at the end of it so that the child is now following in the father's footsteps. Yeah. You, you no longer think about your goals in life. But this is part of the Declaration of Independence. This is why specifically yeah. in the Declaration of Independence, you have the right to pursue happiness. You're not guaranteed happiness. You can pursue anything that makes you happy. You have the right to do that. I had, uh, yeah. at, back in the 70s, I owned a travel agency. And I had this one college professor and his wife that were good clients. And one day, out of the blue, he says to me, you know, you always treat me the same as any other person, and you're not surprised at all that I'm a college professor. And I looked yeah, at him correct. and I said, Mr. Anderson, I have a deep respect for anyone that obtains a professorship. And the fact that you did it under tough circumstances, I have the utmost respect for you because you came up through a hard time. Yeah. And why yep. would I give you any less respect than anyone else? But this doesn't. Well, this is not existing under CRT or under Black Lives Matter. That yep. thought, that thing that no matter what, you, everyone deserves the same respect. Well, now, you see, but it's not true that everybody wants to be free. It's not true that people want to take on the responsibility of framing their own life. In fact... In much of the world, my suspicion is, people really aren't interested in freedom. They're actually threatened by it because it takes a whole lot of responsibility to take on your own life and decide what you want to do and organize your life around it and do the other things that you have to do to get ahead. This is not easy, and it's not the case that it's a universal desire. That really isn't true. The idea that the whole world wants to be free like Americans are free, that's a myth. Uh, in, in, in fact, it, is, it really isn't true. 
In fact, uh, I've written an article, basically, uh, which argue, argues that there actually is a worldwide war over freedom going on where much of the world really is threatened by freedom. They really don't want to do it. Uh, it's too tough. It's competitive. Uh, you have to struggle. Uh, you might not win out. Um, there are all kinds of insecurities involved. So many people would prefer to have somebody else tell them what to do. Yeah, I haven't even gotten through my notes from the introduction as we're talking. So I said, I'm still on the introduction of the notes that I yeah. have on here. And, and at yeah. one point you talk about it, it's easier to suffer and survive than to fight and thrive. And I'm saying, again, that goes directly back to the Constitution where they say, you know, they, we would rather suffer until you hit that last nerve and then we rise up. And that thing is now start to fall apart because now they're no longer loyal to the, this American ideal of individualism and freedom. And they think the Constitution is yeah. an outdated document that we should just throw away. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you have no idea what true freedom is un- until you lose all those freedoms. Then you go, oh, well, but I, I thought... Yeah, I, but- I thought Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I was trying to say that the Constitution, important though it is, is really not fundamental to the American system. The Constitution is basically designed to fragment power, so it's harder to get a majority and do radical things. That's what we see going on in Washington right now. Democrats supposedly have a majority in Congress, but they're unable to actually get a majority to do what they want to do. And there's a lot, there are many cases like that in our history. So the Constitution operates to make it hard to produce radical change. But the really fundamental things about good government, namely the rule of law, government by consent, these things don't really depend on the, on the constitutional system. We inherited those things from the British, and their system is very unlike ours. They do not have separation of powers. They have a tight centralization of power in, in London, in the central government, and in Parliament that we don't have. And they also have no, they have no judicial review. Uh, in their system, the Parliament is above the courts. The judges cannot say anything is unconstitutional. There, there are a lot of differences between their system and ours, but they share with us the essence of good government, which is the rule of law and government by consent. They developed those things, and they gave them to us, and these, those are the real essence of the American system. Yeah. Like I said, I'm still on the introduction. With <laughs> well, there's a lot of radical thoughts in this book which haven't ever been written before, and this is one of them, that uh, American power is dependent upon a kind of inner obligation that people have to carry around with them. They have to have commitments to good government and civic values. So in a sense, like the veterans say, freedom is not free. Freedom involves a lot of inner obligations about good behavior. And if you don't have those, then you don't really have the American system. So we depend upon order as well as freedom. And it's the combination of those things that really is the essence of America. Yeah, you know, we have a problem of, of a clash of cultures also. We have a massive, massive immigration problem. And I'm going to say yeah. illegal aliens. They don't yeah. understand these concepts because they're coming from socialistic countries. They're coming from tyranny. Mm-hmm. They're here because they're here that we're giving them free stuff. 
Yes. We're going to turn around and we'll take you wherever you want, whatever city. We're going to provide you food and medical care and education and housing and whatever. And you become part of the uh, new American system of not a hand up, but hand out. Yeah. Yeah. See, the thing, why immigration is a problem is because the immigrants today are coming from the non-Western world. So they don't come in with an individual psychology. Now, that wasn't true 100 years ago. We had a big wave of immigration in the early 20th century. But most of those people were coming from Europe. And so they actually were culturally rather similar to the United States. And they assimilated rather easily. But today, most of the immigrants are coming from Asia and Latin America. And these, these areas are not individualist. In those, in those societies, people engage in, they think of life as survival. You, 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 re, you resist primarily to outside pressures, which you need to, to do what the outside world demands of you. And you really don't think in terms of your own goals. So what counts is external obligation. But inwardly, you're not really bound. Where in America, it's just the opposite. We have much more outward freedom, but that freedom depends upon inner obligations about good behavior, about pursuing one's own goals, and so on and so on. So Americans have freedom, but it's a freedom based upon a considerable individual discipline. You know, it's funny because I'm only second-generation American, and my grandparents would not speak Italian in the house. They said, anywhere you went, you spoke American. I'm not saying huh. English. I said American, you notice. <laughs> uh-huh. Our dialects are a little bit different. Um, that is what assimilation was. You accept America. Yeah. You accept the American ideals. You work hard, and you become part of the fabric of that community. That's right. And yeah. this is not happening with these new uh, immigrants. They collect themselves in these little tiny uh, clusters where they've got like people, whether or not they're Somalian, uh, Afghani, Pakistani, uh, whatever. They stay within their own social norms. So now we're finding in certain areas of these United States no-go zones where you find a Mm -hmm. large Islamic community. Um, This is really true up in Michigan. And there's clusters in upstate New York. But even when the Hasidim came here from Israel or from whatever they immigrated from Germany or whatever, they would have a cluster, yet they managed to assimilate into the community at the same time. Yes, yes. The welcoming yeah. the outside and the outside welcomed them. And you're not finding this with the new clusters. No, well, the no, reason no. is, but the, see, the, the reason is that Jewish people came from Europe. And they represent the origin of Western culture, as a matter of fact. So for them, the change to America was relatively easy. And they did very, very well. I mean, the Jews go from rags to riches in a single generation. It's just extraordinary. Uh, they're not typical at all. The current immigrants today are coming again from these worlds with, where you don't have an individualist culture. So for them, the adjustments are much greater. The, the really fundamental problem isn't so much that people are living with other members of their own group. It's the fact that they may not be participating in the economy or they may not be going to school or getting through school. Some of the new groups, like Hispanics, have a much harder time getting through school than they used to have. And the reason is not so much that they don't speak English, because they do pick that up pretty quickly. It's rather that uh, school is individualist. School assumes that you're competing with other kids to get ahead. And, And that's the whole American system is like that. 
uh, we believe that you should go out there and do your best, and you will be recognized accordingly. Uh, and if things go wrong, well, you try again. We, have, we believe in second chances and third chances. We don't give up anybody, but we also don't give you anything. Uh, you have to make an effort. You have to go out there, and, 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 and you used the phrase earlier, when you, when you take a job, you are actually joining the society, and that's really true. Until you are employed and have a function that other people depend upon, you are actually not part of America. It's those who are engaged in pursuing their goals, uh, like working, getting ahead, getting through school, all that. That is what really makes you an American. But to do that, you have to take on the burdens of freedom, and it's not easy. Now, you know, a, a lot of this that you and I are talking about, people are afraid to talk about. Uh, and, yes, and yeah. They are utterly afraid to have this discussion because it's considered racist. And yeah. I watched a segment from The View that was played up on Newsmax just a little while ago, and I was utterly shocked, utterly shocked that it's like, no, no, you're a racist because you were born white. I mean, these are people on a major TV show, and it's like, yeah. well, you could never understand us. So that if you dance in a certain manner, if you dress in a certain manner, if you say a certain yeah. phrase, yeah. then you're exerting your white privilege over us. Yeah. Well, but the see, that, idea that's of the... America is that we're all the same, but that has just been wiped off the slate. Well, well, actually, in a sense, what the what advocates are saying is almost they're also saying everyone's the same, and they mean by that that we're going to ignore the cultural differences that I've been talking about, where some groups, because they came from outside the Western world, do not immediately take on board the burdens and responsibilities of being an individual. That isn't something that much of the world knows about because it isn't typical in most of the world. So we do have an adjustment to make when, when those groups come to America. It's not about race. Race is not, pers is not independently important. And my research on cultural differences, my sources say very clearly, these differences are not related to race. There's nothing inevitable that, that requires that people from non-Western countries mostly be non-white. It isn't what was crucial about the West it's not that people were white. It's that they were assertive and they were daring and they took risks to pursue their own goals. You know, I mean, my family came here in 1635. They were part of the original wow. uh, Puritan, Puritan uh, in settlement of, of Rhode Island in Massachusetts. And they took extraordinary risks to do that. And that, that is what marked, marked them out. It wasn't that they were white. It's that they had a mission and they were pursuing it. So they came here and they made a new society in the wilderness. And, I mean, extraordinary, a crazy thing to do from any rational point of view. But they did it, and that changed the world. So it did. it's the assertiveness of the Western culture that really makes the difference. And, and there are many people in America who didn't originate in the West who are non-white, but a lot of them have gone over to the Western attitude in America. I mean, I estimate maybe a third of black Americans, for example, they originally came from Africa, but now about a third of them have adopted individualist attitudes. And they're just like you and me. They are uh, uh, pursuing, uh, to use a religious phrase, they're pursuing their salvation with fear and trembling. They are getting ahead. As, uh, uh, they are pursuing their own goals. And that is what makes them American. The fact that they're black is unimportant. Unimportant. And I don't even notice it. The key is that they are, they're like me. They are overcommitted uh, individualists pursuing a certain mission. 
And that isn't what the rest of the world wants to do. Most people find that too demanding. And well, yeah, because what we're coming with these new immigrants, these new illegal aliens, it's no longer the pot of assimilation. And you write this. These are your words. It's no longer yeah. a pot of assimilation where we recognize our differences, yet seek the same America's, I can't even pronounce the word, uh, of freedom, the, our ideal of freedom yeah. you're writing about, our individuals yeah. and our chance to succeed. They've been told, no, you cannot do this. They have been told, yeah. well, this is this is the race you're born in, this is the religion you are born in, and these are the rules yeah. that you follow. These, these Americans, they're crazy. Don't listen to well, them. Well, that they are. Today. I mean, see, most of the world, I mean, the, the first the first thing that God says to Abraham in, in the book of Genesis is, leave that country and your kindred and your father's house and go to a country that I will show you. A country you don't know what's coming. You don't know what's going to be there. Nevertheless, Abraham got his act together and they went to Palestine. And that changed the world. But in most of the world, people never live home like that. They stay home and they become elder figures in their families and their village or their tribe and and they never leave home. They never pursue an individual vision. Their their whole life is bound up in a social context that has been there from the beginning. And and there's nothing wrong with that. But that is not the American way. See, that doesn't lead to progress. It leads to a conservative society that tends to be the same generation after generation. You know, when the when the Pilgrims came to America, Massachusetts, that's the way Native Americans lived. They were a tribal society, and they had another way of life in which fundamentally everything was set for you. You were a member of the tribe, and you did what other people expected you to do. And that was, I don't say that's a worse life, but it's certainly not the American life. That way doesn't change the world. That, that way doesn't allow you to pursue the goals that Americans have pursued. And that's why, in the end, that didn't have much to do with the formation of the country. I mean, I, I feel very badly about how we've treated the Native Americans. I think they have been very definitely beaten up. And, and there needs to be a reckoning about that. Uh, I'm disturbed by that. But the fundamental difference between them and the English coming in was cultural. It had to do with the fact that the pilgrims had a very different idea of what life's about. Life was really not about the present. Life was about a goal that was beyond the horizon, and they had their eyes on the horizon. They weren't focusing on immediate concerns, and that is, that's the difference right there. Well, uh, Professor Mead, I want to say my co-host Curtis had to leave. He's got a book signing yeah. tomorrow, so he had to go to his supplier to get the books. Otherwise, he's not going to have a signing. But instead, <laughs> another another co-host has just joined me. His name is Vito Esposito. He's got a show called Mamma Mia, No Sharia on Global Patriot Radio. Vito, Good day, uh, Professor. We, yeah, we have, uh, that's a great Professor title. Professor Lawrence Mead. Yes, it is, isn't it? And Professor Mead's book is Burdens of Freedom, Cultural Difference, and American Power. He's also the host of Poverty and Culture, and we're discussing his book. And as I told him, it took me six hours to get through the first three chapters, because I have 40 <laughs> pages of notes. Literally, I'm, I'm going to hold it up to the, ca- the camera. I got the printout here, and it's like yeah. <laughs> two-sided. Uh, but what we're yeah. finding now is with, with this new migration or immigration into our our country, and uh, my friend Mike Cutler used to be an ICE agent. He has his own show, uh, The mm. Mike Cutler Hour. I've known Mike, I, I think, about 36 years. Uh, when I was a cop in the 9-0, he worked upstairs with the borough, 
uh, and the, mm-hmm. the detective squads uh, helping to deport illegal aliens. And there was one yeah. illegal alien, he personally walked over, across the border three times, who came back to kill a friend of mine, Bob Mashadi, in the line of duty. And we're having this new society forming in here. It's diluting yeah. our founding principles. It's putting us into a more progressive, liberal, uh, almost yeah. a socialistic uh, form of government that we see with yeah. AOC and others coming up with these crazy ideas yeah. and crazy Uncle yeah. Joe sitting there in the White House. Um, and we're having this influx of a criminal element also, which Donald Trump is true about that, with the increase of MS-13, the increase of uh, illegal drugs coming across the border, uh, fentanyl, and now that some of them yeah. are coming back to heroin. Um, we're seeing a human trafficking and sex trade coming through, and yet mm-hmm. we are allowing this to occur, and it's diluting everything, all the principles we stand for. So what do we do at this point? How do we return well, to the founding principles? Okay, what my main concern about immigration is simply the scale of it. There's too much. Uh, my recommendation in the book is that it be reduced by half. Uh, we need to get it down to a level where we have a better chance to assimilate people into our system with the appropriate values. And that means obeying the law, paying your taxes, pursuing your own goals, getting through school. Those things are what make you an American. And right now, we can't do it because there are simply too many immigrants, uh, especially in the big cities. The public schools have been flooded by huge numbers of immigrants coming typically from Latin America. We understand these people are facing hardship in their home countries, but we simply can't have the whole world come to America. We have to realize that there are limits, and the same goes for Europe, which is also facing enormous immigration pressure. And the reason we need to set limits is precisely because the groups coming in think of life about survival, and they don't think of it in terms of pursuing personal goals. And they need to make that change. And the, and the big agent to do that is really the schools. Uh, when kids go to school uh, at a young age, they need to learn uh, good rules about good behavior. They need to learn essential skills. But they need, above all, to, to form goals about what they want to do in life. That is actually the main problem you face in America is deciding what you want to do. Because you have choices, which you don't have in other societies. And as I mentioned before, many people are unwelcome. They find those choices unwelcome. They don't really want to make the effort. Okay, well, this is not the country for you. You shouldn't come here if you don't want to engage those. And you shouldn't shouldn't come here just to survive. Uh, In fact, if you don't like America, you should stay home and fight for your own country and improve things there so you don't have to come. In fact, I'm starting to think that maybe we shouldn't really have immigration. Rather, we should take other actions to improve conditions in the countries people are coming from, because that is the real problem. They're not coming here for freedom. They're coming here for survival. And America is fundamentally not about survival. It's about something more ambitious than that. Well, you know, you you hit on something that I called for a long, long time ago, that if we were to pull our financial aid from a lot of these countries and say, returning that aid back to you is based upon you doing X, Y, Z. Now, Trump did that with the border. He did that to Mexico. He did it to a lot of the other Central and South American countries. He said, this aid is dependent upon you doing these steps. If we as Uh a nation 
did that. We stood behind it. And we have a president and a Congress that would reinforce those rules, bring back the original ideal that when you did come here to the United States, you had to go through a background check. You could not come here unless you had a sponsor, and that sponsor was responsible for you. You had to have a place to live already and a job waiting for you. And you could not accept any government assistance for five years. At that point, that that individual, that immigrant, is completely independent, and after five years, they will not touch government assistance. I mean, my husband's family came that way. My grandparents came through that way. And you have to have a skill also, but we're not requiring that. No, we, we, the, the conditions have definitely been eased, that's true, but the really fundamental problem, I think, is that really we don't have legal control of the border any longer. Through the asylum system, essentially anybody can get into the country and then make a claim of persecution in their home country and stay in America. So, now, those claims may be disallowed later in the courts, but at this point, the, the people who've come here can disappear and be, remain illegal, and then eventually, and this is what Congress is talking about, they may be legalized later by, by the government. So the, the public um, would like to see limits on immigration, but the immigrants themselves are coming here in large numbers, even though they're illegal, because they think they can be legalized later. And that has to change. You have to get control of the border. We have to cut the numbers. And then we have a better chance to assimilate people into a very different way of life. Do you think it was by design that, that, the, uh, that the border issue is out of control or we lost legal control? Was that a, was that yeah. a conscious decision by lawmakers uh, or a lawmaker uh, or the president, former yeah, president I think of the, the United States? I, it was in part a deliberate decision. When Biden ran for president, he and the whole Democratic Party opposed the steps that Trump had taken to close the border. And some of those steps were questionably legal or not legal. And they could be challenged in court, and they were being challenged. And the advocates for immigrants were totally opposed to Trump. Okay, but Trump did, in fact, close the border. We needed to do that. So now Biden comes in and announces that he's going to have a more humane approach to immigrants than than Trump. And that encouraged many more people to come to the border from Central America, particularly. That's where the countries are falling apart, and they are in large numbers uh, coming to get into America. And because of the asylum system, they can all do it. Uh, there's essentially no way to block them at the border. Now, Trump found ways to block them at the border, and we need to restore some of that. Uh, that's the only hope here. I think we really do have to set limits. And if, and if they don't do that, it's going to be the undoing of the Biden administration. They really cannot go on like this. They're going to have to affront the advocates and say, I'm sorry, we have to, we have to control the border. And part of the reason you can't is because of the legal arrangements, uh, which now very much favor immigration. So that has to change. We have to wait. We have to set limits. And the point is not to avoid all immigration. It's rather to limit it to the share that we can really assimilate into the American system. That's the problem. There's no assimilation yeah. at this point in time. And yeah. they're bringing their ideals here and they're demanding what they had back home here. And that's kind of Well, no, they didn't clash. have it. They didn't have it back home either. That is, remember, they're coming from poor countries that don't have social benefits. They don't have welfare. They don't have social security. We have all those things because this is a rich country with a strong government. Uh, they don't have that in Central America. They don't have it in much of the non-Western world. So it isn't that they're coming to get welfare. What they're doing is they're coming to survive. 
And as I said before, survival is really not what America is about. We take survival for granted. We assume that you can live a coherent life in America. But we call upon people to attempt more than just survival. We say to them, what do you want to do with your life? See, that's a big question in America. It's not a big question in most of the world. You get told who you are by the surrounding society. We don't believe in that. We want people to have choices. But to exercise those choices is very demanding. It makes demands on it that you don't face in an unfree country. Wow. Go ahead, Vito. No, I, I was just listening. I'm, I'm still fascinated by the fact that it's, that uh, Dr. Mead's family settled in America in 1635. So that's still fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were crazy. See, these were these were, were the crazy. original Puritans. They came from uh, the eastern part of England. They were Puritans. They were religious radicals who rejected the established church. Although England had a Reformation and they'd already thrown out the Catholic Church. Um, that wasn't good enough for the Puritans. Uh, they got on sailing ships and they crossed to America. I mean, to get on a sailing ship in 1620, you got to be crazy. You yeah. really got to be okay. crazy. The odds of surviving such a trip were very, very low. And in fact, half half of the pilgrims died in the first year. Uh, but that they weren't thinking of that. They were trying to found a new society, and they did. And that was their vision. They had their eyes on the horizon. And that quality is still found in people from that background today. They have their eyes on the horizon, and they're setting an example for the whole country. Now, they're crazy, some of them. Some of the things they want to do, I would disagree with. It isn't as if everything they do is correct, but they have a mission and a vision. And it's that quality that makes the society dynamic. Well, you know, go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. Uh, I I was just going to say that... No, go, right. ahead. go ahead, Annie. Go ahead. I'm, I'm good. No, please, please, go ahead. <laughs> hey, Come on. Sorry, sorry about that. Um, I, I was just curious as to what you make of the, you know, the border patrol agents who are are put in a precarious predicament down at yeah. the border where they're doing their job, but yet they're being I undermined know. by this administration as yes. well. Yes. No, I I agree with that, and and I think that's it's, it puts them in an impossible position. No, we should enforce the, enforce the law. Le- immigration should be legal. It should be produced and it should be legal. Uh, and some some of the practices we have now, like birthright citizenship, where any child born in the country is automatically a citizen, even though her, his or her parents may be illegal. You know, that's crazy. No other country yeah. does this. Uh, we should outlaw birthright citizenship. You should no longer be able to come into this country illegal and then find some basis to stay. Rather, you should come legally. And again, we're not against all immigration, but it has to be legal, and it has to be. We have, we have to preserve the rule of law. That's one of the things that differentiates our country from the, the countries these people are coming from, where you don't have the rule of law. And the, I think the border patrol is doing a very tough job, and we have to keep supporting them. We need to say, hey, you're, you're enforcing the law. Do not be apologetic about this. No, people come here legally; they should be excluded. They should be deported. That's all there is to it. And we can't have endless, endless special statuses, which we have now, which allow illegal people to stay. That has to end. We have to make clear to the countries outside America that you have to satisfy the legal rules or we will not let you in. That's all there is to it. And that has to be definite. Otherwise, we're not going to control the border. You know, 
we've got every state, every 50 state, and again, my friend Mike Cutler introduced this idea in front of Congress when he was testifying before the 9-11 Commission, that every state, yeah. all 50 states, are border states. Because not only do we have them yeah, coming sure. over the southern yeah. border illegally, uh, we have them coming through our airports on these yeah. visas, yeah. and they overstay the visas, they disappear, you never That's see right. them again. So we have a two-pronged attack on our nation. And uh, with that, you also bring up the idea that we are in a large cultural battle and war with China. Now, yes. explain how that is affecting us yeah. all over the place. See, China is important primarily for us because it is a source of many immigrants, and they're coming from a very collective-minded society, not necessarily collective in the sense of big government, but a society where people don't think of themselves as individuals. They're coming from a society where people are part of groups, part of their community, their family, their locality, and so on. And above all, where people usually don't take initiative for themselves. They're told what to do by the hierarchy, by the leaders. And that's characteristic of non-Western countries. The leadership tells you what to do. And most people deferred to authority. There's no notion that we should question authority. And so they do what they're told. But what that means is, although it can produce enormous productivity because China is such a big country, although that's true, what you don't have is dynamism because the individuals involved are really not individuals. They're taking orders from above. They're not solving any problems, coming up with new ideas. Any, all of that requires a more individualist culture, which they just don't have. And when those people come to America, they have a very considerable time adjusting. We think that Asians are the model minority that is doing very well, but only as long as they're in school. See, when they're in school, then life is kind of like Asia, where you know what you're supposed to do, you learn certain things, you satisfy the teacher, and they pat you on the head, and then you, you go on to, you think, uh, a secure future. But that, that's not America. See, we, after you get to college in particular, we start to expect that you have your own ideas, that you make your own arguments, that you start solving problems for yourself. And my experience as a teacher is that Asian students have a really hard time with that. And there's research supporting this as well, that Asians have a hard time getting to the top uh, in various hierarchies, business, the academic world, and so on and so on. Although they do very well at the lower levels, the leadership positions require more capacity to set your own goals, to define new problems. So rather than solving problems set by other people, you have to define what the questions are. That's what leadership means in a free country. And Asians have a really hard time with that because that isn't part of their culture. Now, they'll learn it over time. Uh, it takes about three generations, according to research, for people from foreign countries to take on American attitudes. But the Asians are having a much harder time than people perceive because they're not individualists coming in, and they need to, they need to learn that mentality. Well, you know, uh, I've, I've talked a lot about China. Um, with uh, Gordon yeah. Chan is a, a sweet friend of mine. I had General Spaulding on. I've had several other people uh, speak about uh, China. And the mindset is so different from American, the Western culture, uh, where yeah. in China they are the superior race. It doesn't matter. You may marry a Chinese citizen. It doesn't make you a citizen of China or a member of their society. Yeah. You are still an outsider. It is them yeah. versus us, and it's a huge, huge cultural war. And uh, yeah. President Trump was starting to win it. 
And matter of fact, our next guest after you is Peter Navarro, who's got a new book mm. out too. Uh, so um, when we try to deal with the Asian mindset, we think as a Westerner and not as if we're dealing with a completely yeah. different culture. And this is where we get it wrong every time. When I, Nixon I think that's right. went to yeah. China and did the ping pong policy, I was screaming up the, I go, you're making a huge mistake. He didn't understand, and Kissinger definitely did not understand, what the door that opened was going to cause. Now, we have so much influence from them on the rest of our society, and it's changing our society. Well, Kissinger was correct to go to China because although China is not like us and the culture is radically different, it's still a very big, powerful country. They're getting very rich. They are going to have power. No, there's no denying it. So we have to come to terms with them. We have to reach some kind of understanding. And that's something we should do, even if we're different. But we should also be wary. We, we certainly should not take into America a view of life characteristic of Asia. It isn't just China. The rest of Asia also has this non-individualist, collective-minded sense that everybody's part of a larger collectivity, and they really don't they don't think of themselves, they don't think of life as involving innovation or, or uh, change of any important sense. And that, that means that they have certain strengths. It means you can mobilize a large number of people for a goal once you know what you want. But what you can't do is you can't solve new problems. I mean, Asia's problem, China's problem, is that they're not very good at coming up with new ideas. And that's America's greatest strength. See, we, we have an economy that's perpetually coming up with new ideas, Silicon Valley is just a, a recent example. It's been going on for, for really for centuries. And Asia doesn't have that because that requires a different culture where people take responsibility for things. And they may make some fundamental change. I mean, I'm thinking of the Wright brothers. Uh, these were bicycle mechanics from Ohio. They were nobody. They had nothing. But they invented the airplane. They changed the world. That was simply something they decided to do. Nobody gave them permission to do that. They went ahead and did it. And that's very much like the people who founded uh, Silicon Valley. And they also uh, created a new world. And we tolerate that. We allow radical change because of innovations made by other people in the private sector. And that's something that Asia is really afraid of because if you do that, you create uncertainty. And there may be winners and losers. And, and that's the kind of thing Asia is, indeed, the whole non-Western world, is afraid of change. And they don't want to have to face the dynamism of a truly free society. So they fear it and they restrict it. And then they don't get rich the way we do. They don't have the kind of power we have. So there's a price to be paid for, let's call it the the Asian way of life. Um, Yes, they're getting more powerful. We have to deal with that. But I don't think they're going to rival the United States for world leadership. No, but what they have done, I'm sorry, but what they have done, they found a way to solve that problem by stealing the intellectual uh, property of others. And and that is how they solve their problem. So they turn around and say, oh, you make these great widgets. Um, If you have them manufactured here, we can manufacture for one-tenth of the cost. We won't tell you we're involving with slave labor. Uh, We we won't mention that at all. But in Uh the interim, uh, one of our communist party members must be on your board, and you must surrender all the plans. So once they learn from us, then they steal everything, and then they kick you out. Uh, So they have 
solve that problem. But what they also well, did, and I'll go back to the yeah. visas, they send the people over to work in our medical fields, technical fields. They learn, they steal, send it back. So if they can't innovate, yeah. then they find another no. way to do it. Uh, yeah, but that's not equivalent. See, that that means that you're limited to the psych- to the technology developed in a Western country like the U.S. And only then can you take it home and and develop it yourself. I mean, that's basically what Japan did before China began growing. China, Ch- Japan did very much the same thing, and they became rich and powerful, and so on, and so on. But they haven't been as successful in innovating their own ideas. And again, that's because the culture is collective-minded. This is uh, Japan, like China, is one in which most people don't think of themselves as individuals with an independent life, but rather as parts of groups, families, so on. And that has some certain strengths, but they can't innovate like we do. And, and ever since um, oh, the last 20 years or so, Japan is, although it's still a rich country, has really not been the leader that it used to be. And the reason is uh, certain problems and their society and governmental problems, which they haven't been able to resolve because in the end, the institutions aren't as strong as we have. So I don't think we should be afraid of China. We certainly have to worry about their military uh, activities, which are threatening to the countries around them. But I don't think they're going to take over. I really don't. I think the U.S. is still going to be the leader uh, to most of the world. That's what makes America. That's what makes the United States of America the greatest country in the world. Our founders were brilliant, yeah. and since you go, your yeah. family your history goes back. It's it's what you said earlier about yeah. Thailand and education in, in Asia. I mean, we have the ingenuity, we have the creativity, and we have the the passion after yeah. after college or after schooling. Let's say. yeah, yeah, I mean, correct. Our, our well, a lot brilliant. of people, a lot of people make good in America without even going to school. Uh, and, and if you don't do well in school, it's not the end of your life. Uh, you have second and third chances, and you can do something else. I mean, the thing about America is that the game never ends. You know, a football game ends after four quarters. Well, in America, the contest to get ahead really never ends. Uh, and, the, I mean, this is, in a way, a problem because people who are successful early in life, then later in life they find themselves being challenged by other people who were maybe not so successful earlier, but who come along later and get something going. Uh, and uh, so, again, it's competitive. And and there's no dishonor in coming out poorly. Um, you know, you try hard, doesn't work out, that's too bad. Try again. And even if nothing works out, we admire the effort you make because the effort is independently important. That is something that makes the society what it is. And we have to believe in that. Uh, and uh, that is, I think, that's why, but that's why it's hard. See, a lot of people are not are not game for that. I mean, the idea of where you have to compete, work as hard as we have to do, um, that's hard. This is it doesn't come for free, and and freedom isn't free. You have to you have to compete in ways that are hard for some people. Uh, and I mean, it just happens to be that the people who founded the country, I'm thinking of the Puritans, were particularly hard on themselves, particularly hardworking, particularly inner driven. Uh, they were severe. They were not nice people. They were, in fact, revolutionaries trying to change the world, and they did, by creating the country that they created. I mean, already by the 1820s, this is about, oh, 40 years after the founding, the country still has many problems. It's a little tiny country clinging to the eastern seaboard. Foreign observers at that time predicted that the country would rule the world. It was going to become the world's dominant nation, and they perceived that in 1820. How did, they, how did they know? Well, they saw the character of the society. 
They saw well, the professor? dynamism. Yeah. Well, pro- professor, I have my next guest up, my next victim up in the bullpen. I want to thank you. <laughs> I, I, we, we've got it. We've got to have you back again. We, I only covered the first two chapters of my notes with you well, just today. Well, I, I, I said related it to six hours. Yeah. We can go section by section and go through the book. Professor okay. Lawrence well, Mead with NYU. Your book is called Burdens of Freedom, Cultural Difference, and American Power. And you're also the host of Poverty and Culture. Yeah. Great. Uh, well, so, I, like I, I look said, forward I to another that. talk. All so, right. God bless you. Great to talk to you. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. All right, Professor Pete. Now, we've got our next victim up in the bullpen. Want to welcome back to the show a fellow paisano. We've got three Italians again. How did we manage to do that? Hey, mama mia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Peter Navarro, uh, he was the uh, former um, advisor to President Trump that was put into purgatory at one point. Uh, and he also has a new book out also that I received only two days ago before, and I've just started reading it, and I have to apologize. They didn't give me enough time. It got dumped on my front porch at 7 o'clock in the morning by Amazon. <laughs> and the book is In Trump Time, A Journal of America's Plague Year. Good afternoon, sir. How are you today? Well, you know, in Trump time, the phrase is, is designed to mean it as quickly as possible. So I guess we did not get in Trump time to you in Trump time. <laughs> <laughs> My, my, my <laughs> well, you know that you're going to have to come back again now. You know, there's, there's no answers or buts about that. So we can talk. Matter of fact, Hans von Spakowski, his book came in only yesterday afternoon, and he's the next guest right behind you. So, hey, yeah. listen, I'm popular. Well, you know? I'll, I'll give you, look, Annie, I'll give you the spoiler alert. Uh, Fauci lied, Americans died, the Chinese Communist Party attacked us with a virus, Pence betrayed Trump, uh, and I'm just getting started. So, you know, pick one of those topics. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> We had a, a, a previous guest who, who talking about the HIPAA Act, and I was really shocked and surprised that Representative uh, Donald from Florida actually mentioned why isn't the HIPAA Act being uh, invoked. And every time Fauci opens his mouth, as a matter of fact, I've got to put up here, uh, my mom, God bless her, she's 89 years old. <laughs> you want an Italian Roman Catholic <laughs> grandma? Um, I have a mime, I'm trying to find it, where I put Garland next to Fauci, and they could pass for brothers. I mean, two stooges, right? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Although, although Fauci, if, you, if you're familiar with the picture of Dorian Gray's story, I, I know there's a picture of him in his basement that looks like it's straight out of a Hieronymus Boss painting. I, I'll tell you, but one of the key <laughs> missions of the In Trump Time book um, is, is to make sure that we move Fauci quickly out of government and quickly into an orange jumpsuit in jail. And, and uh, there's, a, there's an interesting story in the In Trump Time book in Chapter 2 of how I first meet uh, this, this evil angel of death. Uh, I find him, you know, I didn't know he walked on water. I, I, I took his measure before I realized he was God, and I found him instead to be, be, uh, be the devil, um, but here's the thing that's so interesting. Um, you know he lied to Congress. He lied to Rand Paul about these gain-of-function experiments. And, and those experiments are when you take a harmless bat virus and turn it into something that can kill humans, right? Um, 
And and that was a lie. Just for that alone, he belongs in a jail cell. But the bigger lie is the one of omission I tell in the In Trump Time book, and it's about a man who at the end of January 2020, at the very dawn of the pandemic, was sitting across the room from me in the Situation Room. And what did he know then? Let's, let's do the checklist. He knew that the virus came from Wuhan, China. Check that box. He knew that that virus popped up within yards of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Check that box. He knew that that Wuhan lab moonlighted as a bioweapons lab for the People's Liberation Army. Check that box. He knew, uh, and only a few people knew, uh, that he had given money, taxpayer funds, to fund that bioweapons lab in China. And he was the guy who, behind the back of the President Trump, lifted the ban on gain-of-function experiments uh, so that they could be conducted at that lab. And finally, Fauci knew, he was told by a prominent scientist, that the virus was genetically engineered. So he's sitting there at the end of January 2020, the very beginning of the pandemic, and the biggest lie of omission was for him not to confess to the president and the task force and me that the, that, that virus in all likelihood was a weapon uh, that came from that lab. And I'm telling you, if he had simply told us that, we would have had a completely different strategy for tackling the virus. We could have saved millions of lives worldwide, hundreds of thousands of American lives. And like I say, the mission of the In Trump Time book is, is to expose the hypocrisy of Anthony Fauci and, and get him out of government and into a jail cell. You know, yeah. um, I would... I had gone over with the previous guest the number of people that have had adverse reactions, the number of people that have actually died or have been paralyzed or completely disabled, who have had miscarriages, uh, heart attacks, all these different reactions. And the total number was something like 779,000 people. Uh, how many have we had die here in the United States from actually from COVID and not from other causes like colon power uh what are we about three hundred thousand in terms of death death from uh from the COVID itself but no it's over six hundred thousand now but here's the thing i'd like to your point um i was um the tip of the president's spear um on operation warp speed in many ways and and in the in trump time book i talk about how i was sitting in my office on february 9 2020 writing a memo to the task force that said, hey, if we start today, we could have a vaccine by October or November. And we hit that mark. President Trump hit that mark. It was a miracle. But I I was also writing uh, memos at the same time that said, hey, look, the vaccine's not going to be a silver bullet. It's going to be leaky, not going to be entirely effective. And the virus itself is going to constantly mutate. And, and my position, is, as somebody who helped get the vaccine going, um, I'm clearly not anti-vax, is that we should only use that vaccine for only the most vulnerable people. And that's, that, that's pretty limited to senior citizens who have a very high rate of mortality after a certain age and people with comorbidities like lung disease or heart disease. And this whole Fauciite, universal vaccine, jab the six-year-olds, 
jab healthy people who've had the virus who have their own antibodies. It's insane, and it's part of the um, the, the the Biden regime's. I mean, the communist China like attacked us with a virus, and and then they turn us into them. I mean, they turn us into a fascist state where where we're we're firing people because they won't take a, an experimental vaccine which could kill them. I mean, it's 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 pretty alarming stuff. Bottom line, it is. It is, and we're seeing the Republican governors start to fight back. My own governor, McMaster's, just the other day said we will not follow the government federal government mandate. As a matter of fact, we're going to penalize anyone who decides to fire someone because of the government federal mandate. We are a state. We're evoking our, our 10th Amendment rights of you know, sovereignty. And I, I think DeSantis has done the same thing. And this is what we need. We need these governors to fight back. And you mentioned a lot of something similar to this, no matter how how you were fighting the swamp. I mean, you get there, you're the closest advisor to the president, and they toss you across the street. Well, you can't even talk to him or see him. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the Interrupt Time book is, is in many ways also a study of my own survival. I, I was the only one of three officials who was with the president from uh, the 2016 campaign where I served as his top economic and trade advisor, um, all the way to the the, uh, the bitter end, as it were. And I, I was uh, frankly shocked when I first got to the White House at how many people were uh, disloyal to the president inside the perimeter um, and actively worked against his own uh, agenda. But you know, he prevailed in spite of that in many cases, uh, designed the best economy in modern history, uh, but the Trump type book, it, it's literally my journal of the plague year. I, I kept a daily journal, and it really gives you a, kind of a blow-by-blow account um, from January 15th, 2020, in the East Wing when the Chinese come to town to sign that skinny trade deal, um, all the way to the, the January 6th uh, uh, chaos on Capitol Hill that um, – that uh, led to the betrayal of the president by Mike Pence. And um, in between, uh, Fauci, Fauci just consistently um, is, is doing things that are going to kill Americans uh, and kill our economy. You know, we were discussing China previously, and I've talked about China many times on the show. Uh, Gordon Chan is a friend of mine. We had General Spaulding on. Uh, and... If people understood one-tenth of what you and I know about China, we would be hawks, and you are a Chinese hawk. Um, You dub uh, that skinny thing with China's seven deadly sins. Explain the seven deadly sins as you see it coming from China. Yeah, that that was uh, an expression, as as I relate in the In Trump Time book. I'm on the uh, Chris Wallace show, the Sunday show, uh, he's always kind of a gnarly kind of dude, right? When it comes to Trump people, and and he goes, uh, "What what's uh, what, what do you what what's your complaint about China?" And and it's Sunday, right? So it's like, no, oh, the seven deadly sins. And I go like forced technology transfer, uh, it's intellectual property theft, the dumping, the state-owned enterprises, the currency manipulation, killing us with fentanyl, um, and that. That basically continues to this day, 
Um, the tariffs that President Trump slapped on China were designed to defend us against at least some of those seven deadly sins. Uh, but the bigger problem we have here, really, is this virus that was spawned in a Wuhan lab. Um, it's, it, that lab is a bioweapons lab. Uh, it, it, you can't even make this up, the fact that Tony Fauci, the god uh, of the pandemic uh, who's supposed to deliver us from pandemic evil, who's actually had a hand in funding the uh, the research and technology that led to the creation of the pandemic. I mean, it's like you try to sell that to Hollywood, they say, nah, that, that plot doesn't work. Yet, that's what happened in reality. And, and um, we, really, we really need to get, uh, get to the bottom of that, and we need to get Fauci out of there. Um, one of the, one of the, the whole strategy uh, of the Democrats, Fauci, CNN, Zucker, those people, was to um, blame the president for the pandemic, and that it was like a zero-sum game. If you did that, you couldn't <laughs> possibly assign any blame to China, right? And so <laughs> right. China got a free pass the whole time. It's like, well, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I, I know how evil these people are. I mean, they're just the Chinese communists are evil. I mean, these guys, <laughs> they, they want to kill us. Let's be clear about that. Um, yeah. And yet I'm watching, it's like like CNN and Zucker, they're, they're like, oh, oh don't. Don't say anything bad about China. It's racist. It's like, are you out of your friggin' mind? Dude, it's like they're trying to kill us. Earth the Zucker. Earth the John Burton on New Day. Come on, guys. Oh, um, man. Anyway, you, you get my drift. But, hey, uh, if you don't like, like reading books, you prefer listening, this is a cool rendition uh, of of a book in Trump time. It's not because I narrated it, which I did, but I, I had what I call a little help from my friends. I actually had um, people who appear in the book read their own parts, right? So I got Steve Bannon in it. I got Victor Davis Hanson. Um, Corey Lewandowski, I think it's fair to say he steals the show with an extended riff <laughs> when he's on Air Force One the day before the election. Um, talking about how Boss, he and Dave Bossy are on um, reading the riot act to um, some of the guys on the Trump campaign for not being ready for what's going to happen the next day. Um, so anyway, that's uh, <laughs> lest I digress. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, AJ sent me an email just before coming on air telling me I can only have you for up to 15 minutes, but I'm watching the clock and you're going past it. So you let me know if you've got a bug out. Well, uh, interestingly enough, uh, I got a bug out in two minutes. Uh, <laughs> so take your best shot. Take your Chris Wallace shot at me. Hit me with a oh. Chris Wallace question. Mr. Navarro, when did you know that Mr. Trump was a wife beater, and why do you serve in his administration? <laughs> 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 no, well, from, from, from what Go I got into the book, there, Chris. 
Go Brandon, Chris. You know what I'm saying? Uh, let's go, Brandon. Yeah. Um, i got to tell you, though, because I, I love interviewing authors because I can tell from when you talk to them and when you read the book, if you actually wrote the book. And I'm going to tell you, you, you wrote this book. That is for sure. And I'm going to sit down and finish it and have you come back on so we can talk more about hey, hey, it. Hey, I'm a blue-collar uh, guy, and I can't afford a ghostwriter. Those guys are, those guys are expensive, <laughs> you know. Those Fox guys can do that, but not me. <laughs> no. Oh, man. I wrote every no. word. They promised well, me a penny a word at the publisher. And then and then uh, I gave them uh, like like a, a million word book and they cut it back to two hundred thousand. So, yeah. well, look, you 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 cover the whole entire gambit from what I've read just so far in the first few chapters, even about yeah. our, our businesses investing in China. And I've been screaming about that that should have never been open to Wall Street for trading China companies. We should never uh, ever have had our uh, Retirement investments with investments from China. I, we have done so many stupid things, ignoring the fact that China is an enemy and wants us dead. And you discuss this in the book. The book is In Trump Time, a journal for America's plague year. You can get it on audio, you can get it on Kindle, and you can get a hard copy. Peter, I've got to have you back soon. Anytime, man. You take care of yourself. Uh, three paisanos, please say. Hey, take care. God Peter. bless. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Go Trump. Let's go, Brandon. Oh, man. <laughs> no, I, I, I got to tell you, we had a sign waving uh, because we had two referendums here in our county that we were fighting. And we were standing on the corner with our signs and we're screaming out, let's go, Brandon. And car horns were honking at us. But, Vito, I got to tell you, we defeated these referendums 72 percent. Uh, to to uh, uh, 72% to 28, we killed it. The other one, we killed it by 79% of the votes. We increased the number of people voting on an off-year election, which normally is between 8 and 10% here locally. We had 14% show up at the polls and resoundingly defeat these two things. It's the great. power of the public. And, all, uh, across gonna, the, all across the country, it was yes. like that. Yes. I mean, there's so much more I wanted to talk to, uh, with Peter, but like I said, oh. he had to run. So um, I, I, I got him. AJ sent me. He only, no, like 12 to 15 minutes max. 15 minutes max. So I don't want to wow. turn AJ off. No, no. no you, have to, you have to comply with that. It, it, and, you know, he's, he is a really, really interesting uh, um, interview. I mean, he, he know, like you said, he wrote the book, so he knows – you know, line verse by verse, and he quotes it verse by verse, and it's just, it's, it's a pleasure to talk to the guy. I mean, I mean he just, he's just a wealth of knowledge. Love the guy. Absolutely love the man. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's down to earth. He's real. Uh-huh. And that's the whole thing. He doesn't mind talking to anyone and everyone. And that's, you know, and everyone I interview that knows Donald Trump says the same thing about him. He will sit down and listen to you and ask you questions. And, and that's the fun part, that he's willing to get to know you. And Peter Navarro is very similar to that. And we're waiting in about another five minutes or three minutes. Hans von Spakovsky, I love saying his name, uh, will be joining us because he also has a new book out too. I mean, I, I, I don't know what it is. Authors are 
tossing their books on my front porch at seven in the evening. And I'm serious. That's literally how I got his book. It got tossed on my front porch. <laughs> and I said, oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. So I, I, I'm sitting here with Hans. And I wasn't able to read a single word because I was reading Peter Navarro's book and uh, uh, Professor Mead's book. Uh, so <laughs> I'm like, I'm reading three books at a time. <laughs> Look at someone, please well, give me. I can't even do well, the Zuko anymore. <laughs> I'm going to Amazon and I'm going to buy uh, Peter's book because I've been reading some. I, last night I, I read some of his book uh, on the, online, and um, which is kind of cool. It kind of gives you a flavor. And he actually stated exactly what was in the book. And so the, the biggest thing that I, I, was, I would have loved to ask him was he, he puts in an exchange between he and Fauci and – um, Fauci says, I've studied travel restrictions many, many times, and travel restrictions don't work. And so Navarro comes back and says, you mean to tell me if China is sending us over 20,000 passengers a day into airports like Kennedy, O'Hare, LAX, some of whom have escaped the ground zero of Wuhan, then there's no risk to, uh, that some of the passengers will seed and spread the virus? And Fauci says, in my experience, travel restrictions don't work. And so Peter asked a question again, and Fauci comes back like a little parrot. Um, in my experience, travel restrictions don't work, and he flat-out lied. He flat-out lied. Absolutely. He lied to Rand Paul, and he lied to Navarro right to his face with a pointed, practical question. Well, we've got our final victim up in the bullpen. I want to welcome back to the show Hans von Spakowski of the Heritage Foundation. How are you doing, Tate, today? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me back. Well, we just had Peter Navarro on, and, and we're still hysterical because we love talking to him. He's always so much fun. I mean, it's been a, a nonstop today. And I got to tell you, it, it was your book that I got tossed on my front porch at 7 o'clock in the evening. So I haven't had a chance to open it. I, I took it out of the plastic. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to have to have you back so we can talk about it. But your book, Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. And um, in today's uh, reports, we're coming across with other massive fraud with the 2020 election, and it's still nonstop. Um, the latest one was ballots in Colorado, uh, and they're finding massive problems in the Mesa County uh, area, but, of course, all of Colorado. And now we're finding in the election that just happened the other day, uh, suddenly this whole big, what is it, 300,000? I don't forget what the number is. In New Jersey, just suddenly showed up days after the election for governor. What is going on out there? Well, you know, New Jersey is infamous for that years after, for, for, for many years. Uh, New Jersey has this long history of certain democratically controlled counties holding back their vote until the count has come in from the rest of the country so that I mean, the rest of the state so they can then see well how many votes are needed for the, <laughs> the candidates <laughs> to win and uh, that's like I said New Jersey has a long long history of this um, there are very many uh, infamous stories about it uh, uh, going back a long long time well, you know, people are really are concerned about vote integrity. And I got to tell you, 
my mom, she lived in the Virgin Islands, so consequently, they really didn't vote. And she said the last time she remembers voting was like 1995. Now, gee, Mom, and she had a stroke, so I had to go get her. She now lives with me. I made sure she registered to vote, and this last Tuesday was the first time she voted since 1995. And she's going, well, what happened to the old machines where you pulled the lever, the curtains closed, you hit the switches, you made sure all the switches went down with what you wanted. You pulled the lever back out, the curtain opened, you voted. But now we have these complicated machines that are just so easy to manipulate. So what do we do about that? Well, I hate to tell you this, but those lever machines were even easier to manipulate. They were extremely easy. In fact, um, uh, in addition to, to, you know, New York and New Jersey just loved the, the big lever machines. Um, Louisiana used to use them, too, and they finally got rid of them when a very well-known longtime senator, state senator there, wheeled a lever machine out onto the floor of the Senate and with a crowd of reporters around and other legislators proceeded to show them how easy it was to change the votes on a lever machine. I won't go into the story of how he did it, but all it, all it took him to do it was uh, his pocket knife, a lighter, and a Q-tip. <laughs> and with that, he was really? able to change the counters on the lever machine. Yeah. Um, so don't think that lever machines somehow were a good thing. They had no audit trail. They were easy to manipulate. Uh, the problem isn't voting machines. The, the problem is bad voter registration rules, uh, no ID requirement, um, this push to absentee or mail-in ballots, which are a recipe, uh, a recipe or, or an invitation to fraud. Uh, there have been many absentee ballot fraud cases in New Jersey. Uh, just, just think last year, Patterson, New Jersey, they decided to have an all-male election because of uh, COVID-19. And uh, all of a sudden, they found all these absentee ballots, hundreds of them, deposited in mailboxes outside of Patterson, the city of Patterson. And that led to an wow. investigation. It led to the criminal indictment of four locals, uh, including, a, I think, a member of the city council. And it led to the overturning of a city council election because of widespread absentee ballot fraud. Well, you know, people are starting to look at the voter rolls, and we're finding that some people are, hundreds of people are registered to one address or to one phone number. Um, there are steps that we can do to help prevent this fraud. And I know here in, in South Carolina, our, my county uh, GOP put together an integrity committee. And believe it or not, it's been it's being led by a Chinese immigrant, and she is so fiercely patriotic. Unbelievable. She, she wants, doesn't want to see the United States fall. And she put together a whole big PowerPoint thing on what is wrong with voting here in South Carolina. Now, after the last election, we went to pre-pandemic uh, procedures, and that's what we did this last election. It was like pre-pandemic, and it's the way you were voting. Uh, they then took that PowerPoint up to our state legislature, and they said, well, you've got these laws on the books you're looking to pass. This is the problem with the laws. Your book, which I'm hoping to read very shortly, 
do you address these issues about, you know, what is wrong with the laws in each state and how they can turn around and correct them? Uh, our final chat, we didn't just want to write a book identifying the problems. We wanted to uh, write a book that also said, well, here's how we fixed it. So the final chapter of the book is a whole series of our recommendations uh, for state legislators on how, and, and county election officials, on how they can remedy and fix the vulnerabilities and the, the problems in the system. So, yeah, there, there's a whole list in there of things to do. And, like, I'll give you just one quick example, uh, if I may, because you were talking about them finding hundreds of people registered at one address. If election officials, county election officials, just did their job, you don't even need legislation to do this, that wouldn't happen. And then you wouldn't be trying to chase after an election whether all these fraudulent ballots were cast. Let me tell you what I mean. When a voter registration form comes in, um, what is the – within a county government, what is – what is the county government's number one priority? It's collecting property taxes, right? That's how they mm-hmm. fund everything. What that means is, is that the county tax department, they know every piece of property in a county. They know whether it's a residential property. They know whether it's a commercial or industrial property. They know what's on it. They know whether it's a vacant lot or a single-family home or an apartment because the tax rates differ. Well, what election officials should be doing but aren't, is when a voter registration form comes in, the election officials should go to the county tax department and say, uh, this, this address, this person says where he lives, well, what is it? And if the county tax department comes back and says, well, that's not a residence, that's, that's a commercial property, then the election officials should not accept and register that person. They need to investigate it. And if the... Um, if the county tax department comes back and says, well, yeah, it's a, it's a residential property, uh, it's a single-family home, then the election officials should ask the county, uh, should, should check their voter registration list and see, well, how many people are already registered at that single-family home? And if the list mm-hmm. comes back and says, oh, well, there's 100 people already registered at that single-family home, uh, well, that would be another indication of, of potential fraud, and they should investigate not only that new registration, but the hundred other registrations at that single-family home. This is simple. This is easy. It doesn't take a state law to do that. Why aren't county election officials doing that? Well, um, here's another problem. Another problem about people that move, and suddenly now they're registered to vote in two different locations, and somehow yeah. or other someone votes from that other location using that person's name that moved out. So we were finding a lot of that in some of our roles. Or the deceased. Uh, A friend of mine, she went through the entire voter registration uh, list for our county. And the shocking number, I think it was something close to 300 people, were still registered to vote. And several of them show as being actively voting. But they're dead. There are many ways in which to clean up the voter rolls, too. Yeah, and again, there's no reason for that to be happening, because what that means is that county election officials aren't doing the two things they should be doing. One is every single month checking with the uh, South Carolina State Department of Vital Records. That's the department in every state government that keeps track of people who have died in the state. 
They should be checking that every month to find uh, voters who have died so they can take them off the list. But second, the, the state vital uh, records department isn't going to have the, the uh, records on individuals who have who've li- who lived in South Carolina, registered to vote there, but moved to another state and then died. They also need to be checking with what? The Social Security Administration. Social Security Administration has a master death index. They keep track of everyone with Social Security number who dies, and they ought to be checking with that to find folks who have died in other states but are who still registered um, in, in South Carolina. Again, that's simple. It's easy. It doesn't take legislation. That's just the county election official needs to be doing that. And if they're not doing it, they're, they are not carrying out their duties. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Social Security Administration is pretty much on top of everything. And I, I'll tell you quite honestly, this is a little bit off topic. Uh, when my husband passed away on June 30th, had he lived exactly two hours and 47 minutes, I would have received his Social Security check for the month of June. But he died just two hours and 46 minutes before the clock struck midnight. (laughs) So the Social Security Administration was on top of that because the next day his check should have been in the bank because it's direct deposit always on the first of the month. But, gee, within two hours and 47 minutes, they knew not to send that check over. Well, that is that is amazing. That is amazing. But by the way, listen, you you also mentioned folks who have moved away but remain registered. Okay, mm-hmm. again, that, that's an easy, that's a relatively easy fix. And what's the easy fix? Well, the easy fix is that, yeah, when people move to a new location and and register to vote again, particularly in a, in a different state, I mean, they don't always tell election officials where they're newly registering. Oh, well, I used to be registered in South Carolina so that election officials can send notice back to South Carolina that this person has now moved to another state. But you know what just about everybody does do when they move to a new state? What do they do? They get a new driver's license, right? They turn in their driver's license from their old state and they get a new driver's license in their new state. Um, And driver's license bureaus in every state are very good about sending notice back to the former state. Hey, this person is now in our state. They've got a a new driver's license here. You need to cancel the old driver's license. Well, are county election officials in South Carolina checking regularly every single month with the State Department of, uh, of, of Motor Vehicles? Are they checking driver's licenses to find people who have moved either within uh, the state of South Carolina or have moved out and have notified DMV about that. If they're not doing that, again, they're not doing something that's very simple, very easy, and, and, and doesn't need legislation giving them the ability to do it. By the no, way, all of these things, all of these things we're talking about, they're in the final chapter of our book. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people... Uh, don't understand until recently exactly what vote harvesting is. And uh, yeah. just before uh, 2016, uh, we were having our county GOP meeting, and they were talking about voter integrity, what we could do to poll watching, blah, 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 blah. And um, I said, well, what about trying to stop vote harvesting? Uh, because at one point, 
I was getting calls from members of my tea party saying uh, people were going up to uh, nursing homes and ballot harvesting when half the people in there had some sort of a dementia where they didn't even know what they were doing. And yet they were, may have been in a coma, but there was strangely a ballot that left that, that nursing home. So ballot harvesting is another big problem we have here. Oh, yeah, and that's a problem everywhere, particularly the, the well, I don't call it ballot harvesting because harvesting has this really, you know, nice name, you know, har- harvesting crops. It's ballot trafficking, just like drug trafficking. That's what it really I like is. But, I like yeah, that. But that's, yeah, but that's particularly a problem um, with the elderly and folks um, uh, who are disabled and in nursing homes and assisted living centers. Um, there's been case after case after case of folks caught uh, in those who, who work in those homes um, registering and then filling, uh, requesting absentee ballots and basically voting on behalf of folks who don't know it's happening, uh, their, their, their signatures get forged, um, and that's a real problem uh, with people taking advantage of the folks in those kind of facilities. Well, i got to tell you, when I took my mom to vote, we did the curbside because you know, she is – paralyzed on one side and she never understood how to use these machines she like i said she's accustomed to the old lever ones so when the two poll watchers came out with the machine um they asked me to explain to my mother how to use the machine i had to be so very careful so that they heard that i was not influencing her how to vote only instructing her on what to do and how to make her, her selection but that's another problem where you, you have people who don't know how to use these new machines. And they may not, they're not accustomed to the new technology. And a lot of times you're finding it's like, hey, can you help me? Can you punch this for me? And they have no idea whether or not they're punching the correct buttons. Well, yeah, that's the problem. But that's, that's why it's one of the reasons why people are allowed to have uh, folks like you uh, helping them, they're allowed to have voting assistance. That's, in fact, guaranteed under federal law. And, look, election officials need to be prepared to help instruct people on how to use uh, any kind of new voting equipment. I mean, look, the easiest, the easiest, most easily understandable way for people to vote is through what they call the op- OptiScan ballots, right? Those are, those are paper ballots. They're just like an SAT Test, you know, you simply uh, fill in the bubble next to the name of the person that you want to vote for. And that, of course, is the easiest, most straightforward way for people to vote because it's not very difficult to understand how to do that. Well, for us, we've got a two-part system they instituted uh, at the last election cycle where you go to the machine, you punch all the buttons, exactly what you want. A paper ballot spits out, you look at the ballot, the paper ballot, and make sure it's right. all the correct choices. If not, you get the poll worker over there and say, this, there's a problem with this machine. This came out wrong. And that way they can remove the machine and have you vote on a different one, making sure your ballot came out. And then you feed it into the scanner. So you've got the vote registered on the electronic machine, but you've got a paper ballot to physically make sure they can. And I was shocked because... We had turned around and had a conference, South Carolina GOP had the first in the South action conference uh, last weekend. And one of the issues that we were bringing up is an audit. 
Well, we didn't know that here in South Carolina, they are already randomly auditing each and every county to make sure the paper ballot and the machine ballots match. And so far, they found no problem because of the system we instituted. I, I had no idea that we automatically were doing the audits, but that's what we need states to do, automatically do the audits after every election. Well, I'm glad they're doing that, but keep in mind that an audit like that, which only checks one thing, which is are the machines correctly counting the ballots? Well, yeah, all that tells you is that the machines are are working correctly. That doesn't tell you whether the person who was voting was actually the person they claimed to be or is actually eligible to vote. I mean, the best the best uh the best way to explain this is uh look, if I owe you $1,000 and I hand you a stack of $100 bills, and I say, look, that's $1,000, and you count it, and you say, yep, yep, it's $1,000. Well, you've counted, and I have given you $100, so that's correct. But simply counting the $100 bills does not tell you whether any of those bills are actually counterfeit bills. So if you're going to do audits, the, the audit should not only check the voting equipment to make sure it's properly counting ballots, but you also need to be, for example, checking the voter registration list and take checking the names of every single person who voted and cast a ballot in the election and checking to make sure they're not dead. They haven't moved wow. away. They actually still live there. They're, they're U.S. citizens. They're not uh, aliens who have illegally registered. All those things need to be checked. That's, that's the kind of full forensic audit that needs to be done not just checking the, the, the count against what the machines did. Uh, there's so many things to think about to, for voter integrity, and it, it, you try to get your head around it. It's like so many different ways things can go wrong. And you've got states now, um, was it Wisconsin or something like that, that came up with uh, same-day voter registration and a lot of other wacky things that just leave it rife. For, for voter uh, fraud. Now, I got another question for you now. You wrote this book with John Fund. How was it that right. the two of you got together to do this? You know, what brought this together? Well, we've known each other for a very, very long time. And I'm trying to remember, I, I mean, we've known each other for more than 20 years. And I think it, I, I think he was working for the Wall Street Journal I think the first time I, I got interviewed by the journal on an election issue, and um, through that we kind of got to know each other. We became friends. We actually started writing uh, 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 op-eds and things like that together. And then, you know, the, the, we've now written three, bro- three books together. Our first one was back in 2012. It was called Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk. And that, that book was about election fraud and how it really does uh, happen in American elections. And it also had recommendations on how to uh, deter and stop that. Um, the, the, our latest book, Our Broken Elections, which actually came out Tuesday, um, it's, that's kind of an update to a 2012 book, but it goes a lot further in talking about what happened last year and all the changes in election rules that folks on the political left are trying to get in, they've done it successfully in some places, and why those changes are bad and threaten the integrity of the election process. And like I said, the final chapter is 
on uh, recommended solutions and what we think is the best way for states to conduct elections. Yeah, well, now we actually have the federal government trying to federalize all the yeah. elections. <laughs> that is uh, that is going to be a nightmare. Uh, since when is it allowable for Congress to rewrite the Constitution without actually creating an amendment? It, this is the wackiest government I have ever seen in all of my life. And you see it time after time after time violating the Constitution, whether it's not with a vaccine mandate, uh, violating your right of privacy, uh, and now election, taking the election away from the states, where, where are they going to stop? How, where are they going to stop here? Well, liberals are not. Because remember, liberals have a very dismissive attitude towards the Constitution. Uh, they don't, uh, the only time they think about the Constitution is when they can think of a way to either ignore it or twist its language. I mean, look, don't, don't forget, remember the, remember the famous incident when they were passing Obamacare and uh, a reporter asked Nancy Pelosi whether Obamacare was actually constitutional. And she looked at him and said, constitutional? I mean, the thought had never even occurred to her that she should consider whether Congress even had the power to um, pass these laws. I mean, the, the bills that you're talking about, the, the attempted federal takeover of the election process, Look, the Democrats have been pushing one bill after another. The latest one they just tried to get through was, was just successfully filibustered by the Republicans this week. Um, thank goodness it got stopped. But they don't care about the fact that major portions of that bill are unconstitutional. Their belief is, hey, if we can pass it through Congress and we can get a president to sign it and it becomes law, well, then it's going to be up to folks who claim it's unconstitutional to go to the expense and the trouble of suing and going to court. And, you know, maybe they'll be successful down the road in convincing a, a good set of federal judges that it's unconstitutional, but they don't, they don't care about that. They, they, to them, the end justifies the means, and they don't care whether what they want to do violates the Constitution. Well, you know, i got to say one thing. God bless Texas, because this last election they passed – Ten different things uh, to amend their constitution. Matter of fact, I didn't realize Texas has the longest constitution. But one of the things was to demand that the judges that are, are, are gain office must practice law for at least ten years or have been a judge for ten years. <laughs> so you think you would think they would have judges that actually do the law? Well, now they're going to have judges that actually know the law. We need more of that, don't we? Uh, we do. Uh, one of the biggest problems we have in this country these days is we have, unfortunately, too many bad judges at both the state and the federal level who also uh, don't believe in the rule of law and don't believe in the Constitution and, again, think that the end justifies the means. Well, Hans, uh, it's always so much fun to have you. This has been a, a powerful show today uh, between uh, you and Peter and all the other lovely people we had on. I always have fun speaking with you, and I'm sorry I wasn't here uh, when the last time you were on. I was sitting in the emergency room <laughs> having a bad attack. Anyway, 
thank you for joining us, and I look forward to reading your book and having you back on for a longer period of time so we can go completely through the book and get people to purchase it. It is called Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote, and you've got solutions in the book in the last chapter. I look forward to it, and God bless you, sir. Thanks for having me. It is always our pleasure. All right, Hans von Spokowski, find him over at heritage.org. Man, I'm telling you, the only way I knew that something was happening is because I've got this one cat. Her name is Baby Puppy, and whenever a stranger comes on the property, she bails out of the room and hides underneath the covers on my bed. When I see her, (laughs) this streak of white going across and down the hall, I said, someone's here, and I just saw a flash of a figure running up. I heard a thunk on the front porch, and I almost turned around and reached for my gun, going, what the heck? Because I thought someone was attacking my house, attacking And then when I realized it was Amazon, uh, and it was a book on the front porch, I said, oh, my God. I was reading through Hans's uh, book, uh, the uh, the chapters and such. It, was, uh, it's, it looks pretty cool. It would have been good to ask him a few more questions concerning how the COVID pandemic has uh, influenced uh, Congress and, uh, and many states to change their election, arbitrarily change their election rules, and was it by design <laughs> that they prolong yeah. the, uh, the, the yeah. China virus? Unconstitutionally <laughs> yeah. changed exactly. the rules. That's why I said I've got to go through the book and get him back on for a longer period of time. I've met John Fund a number of years ago up in Myrtle Beach at the South Carolina Tea Party Coalition Convention. Um, we're going to see if we can try to get him on also. And when I was at last weekend's conference, I saw Joe Wilson, and he had gotten a new scheduler. Uh, so I chatted with him for a little while. And the next thing you know, he's shoving his card in my hand, and he's writing on the new scheduler. So I'll get uh, Joe, you lie, Wilson back on. And uh, maybe his... Uh, <laughs> His son, Alan Wilson, because Alan's been doing a lot of stuff, and I was talking to people in his office recently. Anyway, that's all we got for today. We'll be back next Friday. Uh, Curtis, will be back. Vito, thank you. Uh, last minute, I called you on the phone last minute when Curtis says, well, I have to leave at 2.30. My and pleasure. Goes, all right. <laughs> I knew you'd come through. <laughs> my Bazzano, my deplorable. Hey, so, my deplorable my radio deplorable. chick. Well, I'm going to leave you with another Italian, Gary Pecorella, with his song, Save America. So until then, I say good night, God bless, and have a happy Veterans Day. Uh, We'll talk to you soon. I'm free for this land I love, America. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.